Hey everyone, welcome back to the pod and the pendulum. Um, right now, it's just me, Mike, uh, kicking things off. But this is actually going to be the first part of like really what's like three sections for this show as we kind of talk about Halloween Six, uh, the Curse of Michael Myers. Um, we're joined by our guest Anya Stanley, who we've been so happy to get on, and we just fought through a bunch of uh, scheduling conflicts. But I really wanted to get her perspective in this movie because, as far as I'm concerned i probably never would have watched this movie again if it wasn't for her writing uh overall like telling people you really need to relook at this movie uh after that we'll have our normal deep dive with uh just jerry and myself and then we actually have a really fun conversation with daniel farron's the uh, writer of halloween six so that follows so this is gonna be a long episode strap yourself in uh grab yourself a drink because it's about to get a little bit weird um so like I said, I'm uh, right now with Anya Stanley. Anya, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, so happy to so happy to have you on here. And so we really just at least wanted to get a little bit of your perspective about this film overall, because you have wholeheartedly embraced this movie. And to be quite honest, I think the folks at Fright Rags might even owe you, owe you some royalties, because I don't think there would be... <laughs> A Halloween sex t- Halloween six t-shirt line if it wasn't for you some of the work that you and some others have kind of done bring dragging this movie really into the public eye. This movie is like a lot of people would call this a guilty pleasure if they even like this movie. They they call it a guilty pleasure, but I don't believe in the guilty pleasures. Fuck mm-hmm. that. No, I love this movie unironically, mm-hmm. and um, I I don't shut up about it on Twitter, and I would love for Fright Rags to give me some royalties or even a free shirt or two. You know, I'll take that. That'll work. Absolutely. Anything. Socks. Anything. <laughs> exactly. Buttons. Make this happen. We need to make this happen. Mm-hmm. If Do they want to fund a thorn tattoo, I don't have a thorn tattoo, uh, oddly enough. And so if they want to fund that, you know, I'd be happy to to get a thorn tattoo on my wrist. Maybe you could just like dig up Donald Pleasance and, and if there's any old skin left, just put that old tattoo. That was gross. We're going to edit that part <laughs> out. Just got super weird. Sorry about that. Um, that will actually be the second time on this show, by the way, that we referenced Donald Pleasance's dead corpse. So that wasn't the first. It's, now it's a little bit odd. So Maybe what was it? if you hit like a certain number, then, you know, like it'll, you get it'll a free hit drink. some. Yeah, you get a free drink. Or you get a free sub sandwich or something like that. That'd be great. Um, so what was it? When did you fall in love with this movie? Was it uh, the first time you watched it or like years later going back and revisiting it? It was definitely years later going back. I think I saw it on TV a couple times here and there. Some chopped up, you know, theatrical TV mm-hmm. cut. And um, it wasn't until I was in my 20s in the army um, that I found uh, I found a bootleg DVD of it. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I watched it and I was like, man, this cult stuff is great. This was actually the movie that that got me back into uh, uh, cult movies. Cult movies are like totally my thing. If, if there's a mm-hmm. group of people in a giant conspiracy and everybody is in on it but the protagonist, I'm very into that shit. Okay. And so, when did, when yeah. did this fascination start? Uh, probably around the same time. Yeah, like right around the army. Um, mm-hmm. Oddly enough, when I was in the army of all mm-hmm. places. Um yeah, I just I got really into that. I, I like how most of those cult movies don't have happy endings. Um, I mean, they're happy usually for one person in that they win some kind of battle, but they lose the war. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of ties in with an overall taste in horror where I just I, I really like that bleak stuff. Like the, mm-hmm. the, the worse it makes me feel, the better the movie is for me. Okay. 
<laughs> so as long as we're walking out of a movie absolutely devastated, then we're feeling pretty good. Exactly. Point. Exactly. Excellent. So that's why movies like Hereditary and Midsummer mm-hmm. and and all of that kind of stuff. That's that is my jam. I love it. It's totally your jam at that. So all the Ari Aster that you can get. Exactly. Get your hands on. I really want to get him on my therapy couch really badly just for <laughs> like six sessions. I just want to let him let it all out. I just want to see where it's coming from, basically, because there's there's a lot he's working through in his movies overall. I like those movies, too, where you could tell like the filmmaker is definitely working out some demons on screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, who else is like that? Uh, Nicholas. Uh... Uh, uh, oh, it's I'm blanking. The gentleman behind the Nicholas Fleming, the eyes, eyes of our mother. Eyes of my mother. Yes. Yes. Uh, that one and uh, piercing, and he's just, he's got some stuff he's working oh, out, absolutely. and I, I love it. I, I love the result. So. Jennifer Kent with the Babadook, which I think is still the best yeah. depiction of like depression on screen ever, mm-hmm. um, which is just and like a really good like I use of narrative therapy and all that fun stuff, but. Diving down a different rabbit hole here. I'm interested <laughs> that you got into like the cult movies when you were in the army. I just wonder how much of that might be because you're kind of considered like all under one umbrella, like do as we say, um, don't question anything. If that all of a sudden kind of got the, you know, the neurons fired it up to be like, well, maybe there is a point to questioning what's actually why are we doing this here? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because I was in the army at in the early 2000s, so just after 9-11, and mm. um, not, not right after 9-11, but a few years later. And um, yeah, there was a point where I was I was fully in the army, and I was just like, kind of like, well, why are, my, why are my friends dying? Why am I here? What, mm. what are we really doing out here? We're kind of mm-hmm. just, we're told to do a lot of things. At that point, I started noticing that Fox News was on every single station, mm. every single TV, wherever we went on post, on base. Um, and it was just, there was a lot of right-leaning stuff and kind of like, you know, follow your orders. And, and, you know, it's the military. That's that's what it is. I get it. Um, but, yeah, it was making me wonder kind of why. And Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So I think you're right. I, I hadn't thought about that until just now. But, yeah, I think you're right. It's it cool. definitely – there was a parallel there. Very cool. Interesting. Um, when you got your hands on this movie, on the bootleg copy, was it the famed uh, not available producer's cut at that time or was it a theatrical version? It was the producer's cut, but it was really grainy. Like you could tell like the alternate ending um, was kind of tacked on there and it was just, it was really poor quality. You couldn't see anything. And um, yeah, I remember going on to message boards and, and trying to figure out what, because the the ending that I had seen on TV, you know, was very different. And so I remember, you know, scouring message boards and talking to people and figuring out that this was the, the, the different produce it wasn't called the producer's cut at the time mm-hmm. um and so that's why i was so confused i was like did i get some kind of beat where it be uh, uh, kind of like this bootleg where there was footage from other movies added in and and just just really cheap and and poor quality okay uh, but that was what what i had and so i i i didn't know if that if that was it was clearly footage from a halloween movie it had you know the same actors and everything but it was just such, such poor quality I, I had no idea what was going on but okay. i loved it i loved mm-hmm. what what i was seeing you know, what i could make out um and i liked i liked that it had this this more cultish ending instead of going the scientific route that the theatrical mm-hmm. cut had um and there was um what i didn't like at the time i was like i totally remember the dad's head exploding in the in in the version I saw uh, as a kid on TV, and I was kind of upset that they they had cut that from mm-hmm. the version that I had. So, 
That's the, so, the only drawback for the producer's cut for me is there's no head explosion in the producer's So you cut. wanted the full-on scanner's experience in all versions it. of the movie. Yes. And they, they wrote that character that way to where, like, you really you, – you, mm-hmm. you need more than just a little, you know, like a little uh, impaling death. Mm-hmm. You, need, you, need something, you need something bombastic, you know? Yeah. He is, without a doubt, aside from Michael, probably the biggest villain of all the Halloween movies to date at that point. Like, John Strode is – just the worst dad ever. Um, terrible. Yeah. And you know, from and, and we and Jerry and I talked about this a little bit in one of our other sections. Like he talked about the difference, say, between Ronnie and the Rob Zombie versions and John. And like you know, Ronnie is just all out there on the page, and he's a complete mm-hmm. asshole. But he's completely kind of ineffectual at the same time. Like he's all bluster. John Strode has this air of respectability about him. Like he runs his own real estate company. He's got a family. You know, you can tell that he's probably involved in some way with like the local business bureau. Um, And um, from outward appearances, he'd be someone that people would respect in the town. But he's such a complete and utter fucking bastard (laughs) to everyone in his family. You can see like everyone lives in fear of him. Um, And that moment when, like, Danny puts the knife to his gut is supposed to be some kind of scary moment and a reveal about Danny. But I'm like, fuck, yeah, you don't put your hands on my mom and and think nothing's going to happen. Exactly. I I did a live tweet one time uh, about uh, Halloween 6, and I remember tweeting John Strode's face and saying that if he were around today, he would have a red MAGA hat on. Oh, and absolutely I got, perfect. I got in my my comments were just a trash fire after that. People got so mad at who? me for, for saying apparently there's there are Trump supporters who love Halloween six and uh they they let me know that they they did not agree that the villain that the bigger villain of the film uh would have been a Trump supporter. That is super weird to me. I don't am, am I wrong here? Do you think do you, what do you think? He's a middle-aged white dude in the Midwest that beats his wife and thinks the woman's place is in the kitchen and they should shut up and he yeah, should make all the decisions. Yeah. Sounds like a MAGA dude to me. I mean, it walks, you know? walks like a duck to me. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's what I'm seeing. He's probably know. still waiting for the Snyder Cut as well at this yeah, point. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. Maybe that's that liberal bias. I don't know. It could be. I, you know, it's <laughs> he. It, I, I don't. I don't see how people can disagree that he would not be a, a MAGA guy at that point. Cause that's yeah. pretty much encapsulates it. And this to me, like it's really, you know, other things about this movie, like you have like the shock jock, like the Howard Stern ripoff mm-hmm. in this movie, which is like, it's so early nineties to me. Very much so. Yeah. So which of the two cuts do you prefer overall going back and kind of, I imagine you kind of watch both mm-hmm. and, or do you just say, ah, this is the one that I'm going to stick to at this point. Um, I do watch both, but I, I definitely prefer the producer's cut. Um, there mm. are definitely parts of the theatrical that I love, um, but the producer's cut for me is the more cult-leaning one. To me, mm-hmm. it's the more um, it's the more ambitious. It's the more out there. And for a lot of people, that they really kind of shot for the stars and fell short. But for me, they they knocked it out of the park by 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 going for something different than what they had before. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, a lot of the other franchises had something similar that there was the um a little bit earlier there was that friday the 13th where they tried to do telekinesis with a mm-hmm. with a, a girl victim and um nightmare on elm street did a little did some different stuff too well they're always doing something different though with mm-hmm. every single film. but um yeah this one it just it, it 
you still had your Michael Myers stalking people, but this one kind of put something behind it. And I know a lot of people don't like backstory, but this is the sixth film in a franchise. You're going to get backstory. This mm-hmm. is what you're going to get. And so I was really, I was really into what they, where they went with it. And, and it's actually, it's not completely out of nowhere. If you go back to um, the, the 1979 original films, novel adaptation mm-hmm. there are kernels of of cult-like cult-like language in there that you can pull um cult of thorn from they mm-hmm. definitely weren't like immediately they didn't foreshadow cult of thorn in any way in the the original um adaptation then the novelization i mean um but actually i think i have it in front of me do i have it in front of me i do have it in front of me okay so in the prologue of the 1979 novelization of the first Halloween movie. The very first uh, uh, paragraph says, the horror started on the eve of Samhain in a foggy vale in Northern Ireland at the dawn of the Celtic race. And once started, it trod the earth forevermore, wreaking its savagery suddenly, swiftly, and with incredible ferocity. Then its lust sated, it shrank back into the mists of time for a year, a decade, a generation perhaps. But it slept only and did not die, for it could not be killed. And on the eve before Samhain, it would stir, and if the lust were powerful enough, it would rise to fulfill the curse invoked so many Samhains before. Then the people would bolt their doors. <clears throat> So you can totally pull um, the cult of Thorn out of that curse uh, uh, reference that they're talking about. Absolutely. And I think even like the writer, Daniel Ferrance, has even gone on and said, like, yeah, he definitely pulled things or at least drew inspiration from the novelization of Halloween. And that like I I thought that was a reach. Okay, good. Nope. No, not at all. Not at all. Um and like the character of Mrs. Blankenship in particular mm-hmm. uh, was the stand-in for like Michael Myers' grandmother uh, in the novelization, who I believe at first like the grandmother kind of teases Michael for his costume, um, but then the grandmother realizes, oh, he is hearing the voices too, and there's a line and gets scared of him, and there's a line Mrs. Blankenship even says like, oh yeah, little Michael heard voices the night I was babysitting him on that Halloween so many years ago. And then she almost not word for word, but gives like a really good summation of what you just read there from the, uh, from the novelization. Right. Exactly. And so like, I like where they went with it. I like the magic rocks. I like the runes. Mm -hmm. I like, uh, I like Paul Rudd in both versions. Um, Who doesn't love Paul Rudd? I mean, exactly. He's timeless. Uh, yeah, he really is. It's kind of scary because he really <laughs> hasn't aged at all from the time of this movie. Um, you know, you said like part it sounds like part of the appeal is the fact that you just really enjoy cult movies. But what was it about a cult movie? Because as much as I like this movie, I'll say it's a good movie. I really enjoy it, but it's not a good Halloween movie. Um, what is it about taking Michael in this direction where he's gone from being this stalking shape without a backstory to now adding a lot of layers to it. What is it about that that appeals to you overall? I like the expansion of the boogeyman from one man to an entire town. Mm-hmm. Um, I like how, I think there was um, in the commentary, I believe, um, for the producer's cut, uh, Daniel Ferrance was on it, and he had said that in the original treatment he wrote, it was really ambitious, and that when uh, Mustafa Akkad read it, that he felt it was too much for one movie, and mm-hmm. so he wanted um, he wanted uh, uh, Farron's treatment to be for part six, and then for a part seven, 
we would learn that more of the town of Haddonfield was involved in this conspiracy mm-hmm. and that it would go beyond that. And I really, really like that idea. And you kind of get a kernel of it in Halloween 6, but I would have loved to mm-hmm. see that that part 7 um, instead of the part 7 we got. And, um, you know, what I, I like the idea of the boogeyman being expanded further than than just one man. Because mm-hmm. if you're in a part 6 of a franchise, it's it's kind of boring when it's just one right. man. Yeah, and I would say most of the franchises by this point run out of steam. And part of what we do Mm -hmm. here is we, you know, our show talks about all franchises. And be really honest, once we got past, say, Friday the 13th Part 6, it was hard to drum up a lot of enthusiasm for a lot of the movies that came after the fact because how many times can you really dip into that well overall? Um, The Halloween series never gets boring, I would say. Mm Even if you don't love every single movie, there's always like just some weird fucked up stuff going on behind the scenes or they're going for these really massive swings and misses overall that at least you it's at least fascinating to talk about the movie itself and the what went into making them overall. So it's never boring. Exactly. Exactly. For me, it was never boring. And, and I'm okay with a big swing and a miss as long as you take that big swing. I'm down mm-hmm. with that. I, I, pref- I like the ambition over uh, over safety for mm-hmm. me. Given that you preder- pre- um, prefer the producer's cut overall, but see merit in the director's cut, I'm of the mind that there's one excellent movie if you take both parts of both films overall. What mm-hmm. would you have taken from the director's I'm sorry, what would you have taken from the theatrical version and put in the producer's cut to maybe make that almost perfect kind of mix of the two? Um, oh, wow. I don't know. Uh, let's see here. I mean, when I say that I like the theatrical cut, too, I mean that I also appreciate that ending um, where mm-hmm. where uh, where they make it more scientific and it's a little bit more secular. Um, but what I what I would take from it. uh Gosh, definitely Tommy Doyle beating the shit out of Michael Myers with a pipe. I really mm-hmm. like that. <laughs> okay, interesting. Okay, but I don't know how I would put that in there because I'm not Daniel Farron. But um, mm-hmm. I, I I do like that uh, that catharsis far more than a uh, than. And it's okay, and he can he can lay down, he can get back up, and the whole the whole thorn transference that occurs with Doctor Loomis that can still happen. Mm-hmm. I'm very into that, and I, I believe. Tommy Doyle was supposed to take after that he was supposed to take over Loomis's spot and kind of be the um, the watcher of, mm-hmm. of, of Michael Myers where um, whereas Dr. Loomis was supposed to he was cursed mm-hmm. to be hit, like sort of like a like a caregiver or a guardian yeah. of Michael mm-hmm. um, I, I kind of like that I'm into that so the way I understand it is Tom like it was going to end up again in the rest stop bathroom or rest stop area that Jamie had escaped to earlier and that it was going to end with Kara Strode dead, um, the baby gone, Danny gone, and Tommy kind of left to take the fall at that point. Oh, that would have been very upsetting for me. (laughs) So it was interesting. Don't don't put Paul Rudd in jail. Not Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd is not Paul. Paul Rudd would not last in jail very long. (laughs) He would not. He's far too pretty and far too nice. It just would not go well. Unless he had uh, that pipe. He was he was he was doing pretty well with he that could pipe. Swing, he he could definitely swing that pipe. And unfortunately, like Dan, uh, I think some of the things that if we kind of have read or found out is like 
part of the reason they have all those chains hanging is like Michael was going to be hanging from them. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of ran out of money and said, just throw the mask on the floor and have some green stuff come out of it. So they got a little lazy. Um, what do you think of the end of the producer's the producers cut with Michael kind of stalking off in the man in black outfit. I almost read that as a happy ending for the character of Michael Myers. Like if they never made another movie, he's no longer, you, you, you are given this history of him being under the thumb of this cult for all these years. Now for the first time, he's not under that sway of them does he get to go off and kind of live a normal life or live a happy ending? Or is he always going to be a killer no matter what? Well, I don't know if, 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 if uh, Daniel Ferentz explained this, but when Dr. Loomis got that, that mark, does he have the curse itself now? Or is he Michael's watcher the same way the man in black was? So I took it and I understood it that he was just the watcher, that they all kind mm-hmm. of have that mark in them. Um, because everybody has that mark. It doesn't mean that you're actually the killer Under at that the point. Under the curse, yeah. Um, and what would being a caretaker have to involve at that point? I mean, really, what does that even mean? So, and if Michael is gone, um, what does Michael get to do at that point? Does he get to just kind of wander off in the night? Or and does he even remember what he's done at that point? Well, the way I read it was that he was still under the curse, but he mm-hmm. just got away in that he just, you know, he just got away at that point. Okay. And basically for me, um, uh, uh, the the baby and and Tommy Doyle and them, they just got a head start running away from him. But next Sam Hain, he'll be after them again. Okay. That's, that's what I imagined. But I wasn't sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but in my imagining of it, I think that it's, it's great the way it is and that he'll keep coming until he... Mm-hmm until he kills everybody who he perceives to be in his family and in his bloodline. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And so I don't know if he knew that the, that the baby was still alive at that point. Mm-hmm. If the, if he knew, then obviously he's, he's still going after that baby. But if he didn't know, then yeah, I guess he's just kind of walking off and doing his own thing. And okay. I don't know what he would do at that point. Right. He's got like, a lot of he just... lot to answer for. Would he take a Halloween off and just hand out candy at the door at that point? <laughs> just like, what's interesting is this is the first, like, after three massacres at Halloween nights uh, in 1978, 88, and 89, Haddonfield finally does the reasonable thing and they just ban Halloween in the town, mm-hmm. which I think is a really interesting angle. And I would have loved to have seen, to your point about having the whole town under this way, I would have loved to have seen this whole town reacting to like the shared trauma of having this serial killer associated with with them mm-hmm. and and not uh not knowing how to move beyond that maybe trying to repair their image i don't know how they would do that with the shock jock in town but oh, uh yeah <laughs> i i would like to see yeah see them try to uh repair their image and maybe put up some tourist posters mm-hmm. and see how that goes that's another movie right there mm-hmm. some tourists come to haddonfield not yeah. knowing what's uh, what's going on, or or some who do know what's going on and do kind of a ghost hunters episode. Mm-hmm. That's that's grave encounters actually. That's grave encounters. That's that's what that movie is. Yeah, and it's kind of Halloween resurrection at that point, going through yeah. the Myers house and. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Sort of been a little bit ahead of its time. You would have got who would you wouldn't have Buster Rhymes in 1995. I'm trying to think who you would have gotten at that point. Maybe the guys from Kid and Play or Crisscross. I don't know. Um, what, maybe maybe Wu Tang. You could have gotten the Wu Tang Clan, oh the whole Wu Tang Clan. 
That would have been incredible. <laughs> Old dirty bastard, everybody. I would have loved been... to see it. You would have still gotten your kung fu too, because <laughs> half them, they're very into that kung stuff. Fu. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what do we think of? We didn't really talk much yesterday about Kara Strode as a character, and part of it is like I kind of find her a little bit underrated overall. Like I. We're pretty much pro team Tina on this podcast, but um, like I think she gets a lot of sla- a lot of flack that's undeserved. Mm-hmm. But I kind of really like the character of character, and it was at a time when the final girls in movies had kind of grown up a little bit. They were no longer high school or even young college students. That what we saw in the Elm Street series uh, and the Friday the 13th series, you had like young mothers now. You had moms that were protecting children. Um, When you have these movies that are like a decade old, you kind of have this idea that maybe the audience is trying to grow up a little bit as well. And you would have parents at the stage and not just your typical teenagers. What was your your thoughts on Kara overall as a character and how – uh, the movie kind of treats her overall. I liked her as a as a an avatar for the Generation X. Really, I liked her cynicism. I liked mm-hmm. how much she had already she had, she had been through some shit, and she was just she was sick of it all. She was just trying to go through her day and protect the people she loved. And um, I think that that's really indicative of the 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 generation that um, that watched this movie when it came out and mm-hmm. and. Um, I mean, you have you have your Beavis and Butthead kind of minor characters uh, here and there, but mm-hmm. like Kara, she was really um, like you said, she was very maternal, um, and they did. I, I think the next slash movie I can think of that that went back to that high school final girl was maybe Scream. Mm-hmm. Was it? When it Scream it was, was, and that was only a year uh, after this. Ninety. Okay, so ninety. Yeah. So yeah. Um, yeah, before that you had like what the dream child or the dream master, which which mm-hmm. one was that? Um, one where, you know, they were taking care of younger kids, um, definitely more maternal final girl types. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, for me, Kara Strode was she was still very quiet, like Laurie Strode. She was you know reserved. She kind of kept to herself, but she was also um, she was definitely way more mature than than past yeah. final girls. And so I, I liked her. I thought she was cool. Yeah. And you can see everything that she's trying to navigate. Like she's trying to put herself back through college and she's studying, you know, psychology in school. And there's not a lot of financial resources for her. So she has to deal with this real bastard of a father um, because she knows like if she steps out of line, it's not only her that's going to pay the price, but also her son. Um, So you can see this real tightrope that she's trying to walk throughout the movie. And I think it's really... You know, you can see her kind of wanting to say more to her mother overall. Like, why are you still here? But she knows that she can't say too much overall. Mm-hmm. And her mom is, uh, her mom's doing her best too. That yeah. poor lady. She's, she, I think she suffered the most out of any character in that film mm-hmm. because she had to deal with the, with, with the Trumpster for, for the most yep. of the film. And then, you know, like she, she didn't do nothing. She just, she was just going about her business, trying to do some right. laundry. And then when she kind of comes to full appreciation of what a bastard her husband is and kind of really takes a stand for the first time, she is decapitated just mere minutes later. Yeah. She, she She gets punished for doing the right thing. Right. Which that never happens in horror movies. Never. No, no. Um, 
So I guess the last thing I kind of want to cover really quick, and thank you so much for for joining us here. Unless you want to go further, by all means, like I won't stop you. Like, no, I've got more. Um, we kind of talked a little bit about this on Twitter, and I know I'm a little bit off base here, but to me, this is the first movie since part one where Michael Myers felt like the shape. And I thought in large part, it was because there was a greater emphasis in the producer's cut in particular on like, daytime stalking and i know some of those scenes do exist in part four and part five overall but this was like michael stalking Kara on the college campus with no one aware that he was around and it felt to me like this was the most shape-like it felt like since the first movie even though the character goes in a really wild and different direction mm-hmm. yeah the um so in the first movie, there was there was quite a bit of daytime stalking, from what I remember. You know, he's hiding behind the hedge, and you know all, all the all the infamous uh, or, or iconic shots that we see where he's hiding behind laundry. And um, in let's see, part two wasn't in part three, part four. Yeah, most of these were were nighttime stalks and nighttime kills. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Not, I didn't revisit four and five recently, so I don't know mm-hmm. if there's actual an actual daytime kill in, in four or five. Jerry's you know? pointed out, yeah, there's the garage scene in four, which to me still seems <sighs> more like a kill by necessity and less than him kind of stalking around. And Jerry's pointed out a bunch of them in five, which I'm like, man, I just watched this movie and I do not remember <laughs> this. Do not remember. It's like it's completely it's like I got kicked in the head by a mule like right after mm-hmm. watching it and do not remember any of what he was telling me. But you're right, though, in in, in part six, there's quite a bit of daytime stalking and, and daytime kills. It's, it may not mm-hmm. be sunny, but yeah, he was he definitely yeah. he definitely killed several people in the daytime and not out of necessity. Definitely because he, those people were in his house. He thought they were they were strodes. And so he thought, I got to get rid of all of y'all. Yeah. And that, that, you know, comes into play again. Like, there's always going to be Strodes around. And I think that's mm-hmm. one of the things that separates, like, Halloween from uh, even, you know, Elm Street and Friday the 13th. Is there's this through line that runs through almost all of the movies where this it's almost a struggle between this family or Michael and his doctor overall, which is just really fascinating to me to kind of kind of watch. So Exactly. And, and then the... the... Let's see, there was the, the the big exposition scene with Paul Rudd where he talks about, um, he explains what the curse is with that really old you know, computer and the mm-hmm. really bad graphics, and he says that the annual sacrifice uh, from the the cult of Thorn is what saves um, the ancient Celtic tribes that that implemented the curse, and with Michael having the curse of Thorn since he's loony and spent si- time in a sanitarium, he thinks that if you're in his house, you're in his family, mm-hmm. and so he kind of they they, they I like how they wrote that in because it kind of gave him a lot of leeway to kind of just kill anybody who's in there, whether or not they were Strodes, because mm-hmm. this family had adopted. Uh, uh, they were adopted, right? They they had adopted Lori Strode a while back or something like that. I can't remember what it was, but it, it was somehow connected to they, their only connection was an adoptive one, and they weren't actually Strodes by blood, from what I, I remember. I thought they were uncle. I thought it was like an aunt uncle thing where they were the like Lori's aunt and uncle, but then they essentially bought the house so that they could like flip it on the market because nobody Mm -hmm. was ever going to buy that house. I know in part four, Jamie uh, is not related by blood to Rachel, but like she was like, 
babysat Rachel when she was younger. So it's like a family friend type of connection. Mm-hmm. But um, with all that said, I do see why the latest Halloween movie retcons all of that mm-hmm. and just uh, starts with a fresh, clean slate and just uh, pretends that only part one and two exist. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's maybe the right direction to go because you get to wipe out a lot of very odd continuity uh, and including like getting and what I really like about the latest movie is is as someone who works with a lot of people that have suffered from trauma is this idea that like trauma does not give a shit about you at the end of the day like you'll think about it much more than it will ever be concerned with you overall and you can never truly it takes a lot of work to truly put it behind you overall. And that, you know, at the end of the day, like Michael did not care two wits about Lori. He just ends up for all intents and purposes, like getting an Uber lift to her house for the mm-hmm. final showdown overall. Um, and like it's an interesting direction to go. But to me, the curse of Michael Myers is the last Halloween movie until the Blumhouse version that actually feels like, it has the same kind of tone and feel that John Carpenter set up in 1978, that everything that comes after it, like even H2O, that does not feel like a Halloween movie to me. That feels like a Dawson's Creek episode with a slasher killer in it. Ah, uh, you know what? Yeah, you're kind of right there. Yeah. yeah. I was going to argue about H2O, but I think you're right. It definitely is yeah. Dawson's Creek. Do you think that's just a product of its time or do you think that? Oh, it absolutely is. I mean, it's a fact. It's a Kevin Williamson movie for one, so he has a signature writing style. And in 1998, you're looking at well, what is big at the box office? Like, there wouldn't be an H2O if Scream didn't hit so big. Like, that's yeah. a movie that completely owes its existence to the fact that like this other slasher movie, which owed so much to Halloween, did so well. Otherwise, we probably never would have seen. H2O would have maybe maybe would have continued uh, with whatever part six would have led to, but it also would not have been as successful overall either. Whatever they would have come up with instead wouldn't have had the success of H2O. But I find that movie to be quite honest, like it's a chore to sit through it. Mm, okay, I like. For H2O, I, I liked that it, it served as um, almost like a progenitor of the the exploration of trauma that Laurie goes through in mm-hmm. uh, the the Blumhouse version, and so I appreciate that. I liked I liked her um, mm-hmm. the public drunkenness and then trying to confront Michael, but also confront her past. I was into mm-hmm. that. Yeah, um, but and other parts, yeah, I kind of have trouble yeah. through it. And it's good, and it's definitely there. It, it does deal with trauma, I think, in a really very real way. But there are things like. Uh, Lori's saying, like, well, you get your sarcasm from my side of the family. I'm like, when was Lori sarcastic? <laughs> um, it's really just like Jamie Lee Curtis playing Jamie Lee Curtis, which is great. Um, but it doesn't feel like the 1978 Lori Strode. So I don't know. Between that and just like the super snappy dialogue and the prep school and LL Cool J writing, you know, romance novels. Um, it's just, you know, it's just not for me, basically. I so like gonna, LL Cool J. <laughs> you can love LL Cool J. Look, I'm not like, I don't want him to knock my mama out. So, you know, like basically <laughs> he's he's fine, but just like it's a very weird comic relief character. I also don't like the fact that the school counselor gets butchered because, look, we have a hard enough job <laughs> as it is. Okay, so we definitely don't need to get butchered by 
maniacs. I feel like the movie's very biased against people in my profession. So that's fair. That's a fair assessment. Yeah. So in closing, Anya, where you know, if someone was to say like, ah, "I'm not watching Halloween Six, like, what a piece of garbage," like, how would you convince them to take another look at this movie? Uh, usually the way I go about it on Twitter, um, other than just being psychotically, uh, enthusiastic about it, mm-hmm. uh, is that, um, it's just, uh, I, I'm a fan of ambition in the latter sequels of any horror movie franchise. And I, I'm not really a fan of safety. If there's a movie that just kind of does what it's always done, uh, I'll probably give it a lower, a lower ranking within the, the greater franchise than I would, a film that kind of just really goes for it. Even Jason X within the Friday the 13th franchise, um, I, I would give that a higher ranking than some of the latter ones. Like, like uh, what was the one I was thinking of? The one on a boat, uh, Jason Takes Manhattan. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I would give Jason X a higher ranking than Jason Takes Manhattan just because uh, it, it went for more. I, I like Jason in space way better than Jason on a boat. And so... Um, <coughs> For me, the the cult angle of of Halloween Six uh, does a lot for it, and it does a lot for the franchise and keeps it from getting stale. And I'm way more into a swing and a miss than I am um, into just keeping it safe and keeping it routine. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're a fan of cults, this has it. <laughs> That's all it is. If you're into cults, this has it, and this takes uh, takes the boogeyman. From one guy to, well, in part five, it was to two guys and mm-hmm. to the man in black. And then to an implied, uh, they implied that it was the whole town that was in on it. And I don't know, that that really that really gets me going. That gets my mojo rising. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I love cults. Yeah, I love conspiracy theories, too. More so than a cult, like a big, all of a sudden you've had this town that has suffered tremendous amounts of death and loss over the year and then you have at the end of the day like a a whole town of people in this really small quiet midwestern town that are into it that are kind of like worshiping michael as almost some sort of like godlike figure at that point that's fascinating Mm -hmm. weird but fascinating so Anya, your writing has appeared in a number of places. You've been with Rue Morgue, Birth Movies Death, um, Dread Central, Fangoria. Where can people find you now? Like who are the, who you say like, you're, the main places you're contributing to at this point? Uh, main places, I would say uh, Fangoria. I just um, started a new column there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will be out this month. And that's where I picked up the gender bashing column that used to be on Dread Central, mm-hmm. um, which is no longer there. I've I've started writing gender based horror column entries over on Fangoria now under a new name. Mm-hmm. And um, let's see where else. Uh, Birth movies, death. I, I generally have a lot of stuff on there. Uh, Daily Grindhouse. I write uh, a lot of cult films and, and nunsploitation film mm-hmm. stuff uh, over there. Uh, I used to have a column there, actually, where I went through the video nasties list one by mm-hmm. one. Um, but I still write for them. And, uh, yeah, generally on Twitter is where you can find me the most. I talk about okay. horror a lot on Twitter at Bookish Plinko. Mm-hmm. And where, if you had to pick, like, three underappreciated cult gems, like cult movies that you think not enough people are talking about or maybe aware of, like, where would you point them? Oh boy. Okay. Okay. I wasn't ready for this one. Um, I know. I'm sorry. I'm springing this on you. 
Okay, okay, cult movies. Uh, let's go with Kill List, uh, Ben Wheatley's Kill List. Oh, so good. Isn't it good? Mm. Oh, my gosh, I love that movie. Um, okay, let's do... Uh, and again, grim, dark, grim Very grim, ending. very dark. Uh, let's go with... Okay, this one is currently on Amazon Prime, and it kind of... I'm using the term cult horror very loosely, but it's called Nothing But The Night, and it's mm-hmm. got Christopher Lee, uh, Peter Cushing... Um, I don't think it's a hammer horror movie specifically, but hmm. it is a horror movie and it involves children and a bunch of old people. And I, I, you should go into it blind. I don't want to explain okay. anything. I don't want you to watch any trailers. Just watch this movie called nothing but the light night that that's on Amazon prime right now. I think it's hard to find otherwise. I think there okay. is a DVD of it out there, but um, I think it's pretty expensive and rare. So um, yeah, nothing but the night would be another one. And for a third one, Oh, boy. Let's go with, uh, you know what? Let's go with Lords of Salem because I think, okay. I think it's a pretty underrated uh, Rob Zombie movie. Mm-hmm. And um, and for me, it happens to be one of his best. Um, it is. I would actually rate it above, I'd, I'd rate it above Devil's Rejects okay. and House of a Thousand Corpses, definitely. But, so you know, I I'm biased. I love me some cults, so. Yeah. I have it just under the Devil's Rejects for me. Um, mm-hmm. House of a Thousand Corpses, I'd say like every year I put that on being like, this is the time I'm going to like this movie. And every year, <laughs> right about the same time, I'm like, nope, still don't love it. Um, I really enjoy Lords of Salem up until maybe the last act where it becomes kind of like one long kind of like uh, metal video. But like before that, it's very creepy and atmospheric and, you know, give me... Give me everything with D. Wallace in it, because I absolutely adore yeah. D. Wallace and everything. Um, so, all right. So you have three picks from our guest, Anya Stanley. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know it was really hard to make our schedules work, but I would rather post uh, late about uh, this movie than not get your input on it, because I really think, you know, you're the you're the expert when it comes to Halloween 6, so... <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. And Bright Rags, if you're listening, you know, I'm, I'm, Free I'm a size medium. Yep, mm-hmm. Women's size medium. Um, if you want to do a thorn fanny pack, I will wear it. I will tag you on Instagram. I will be your spokesmodel, whatever you need. Do Give me all that cult shit. <laughs> Thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Pod of the Pendulum your horror movie podcast that is covering every horror movie franchise one movie and one or so episodes every single time out i'm your host mike snoonian once again joined by my co-host jerry smith jerry how are we tonight i am doing great i'm excited for this episode it's gonna be interesting because it's sunday night it's 10 p.m my time out here so it's definitely late for us to be recording um i'm a little bit tired and we just got a we, we got a nice review. It was like a five star review, so thank you for that. Um, but the comment on it was like, "Please stop stage whispering." And it was on the scream episode, which I had to go back and re-record all my audio for. So it definitely sounds like I'm doing like sexy AM DJ whisper. Um, so if that person is still listening to us, um, we hope that we're no longer whispering, but I have noticed going back and editing some of these episodes where we've been recording a little bit later, um, that I am like, my energy levels way down. So, um, I just basically ate three scoops of sugar and we'll see how (laughs) to do. 
I always sound like I'm on, like, I think, crack anyways. So You like, just sound so happy and pleasant. You do not. What's well, funny maybe... is because it's, it's the Halloween 6 episode. So, I mean, there couldn't, mm-hmm. there couldn't be anything like further from the truth. But... Right. Well, speaking of crack, um, I actually just found this thing and for some reason took a screen grab of it because it was the most 2019 headline ever. And it's five-year-old brings cocaine to class says it makes him feel like spider-man and this is real it's not like a hard times or no man but the best is like it makes him feel like spider-man dad arrested and i guess like when they went to the house like dad was essentially sleeping in bags of cocaine and heroin that were just like piled all around him God, yeah. this is my childhood all over. So, so, <laughs> so, you know, if you do need to pick up some crack before um, <laughs> we go. But we it's just right now it's just Jerry and I solo. Uh, later on, we're going to be joined by Daniel Farrens, the writer of the movie we're going to talk about tonight. And hopefully we're going to be joined also by Anya Stanley of Fangoria, Birth, Movies, Death, Dread Central, because uh, she is one of the foremost advocates of this movie. And we have been trying so hard to have Anya on our show. We wanted her for the Blair Witch episode as well. Um, and I think we've scheduled this recording about four times uh, so far. Just none of our schedules have worked out. So we're hoping she'll be on for the interview um later on if she's not i'm just going to impersonate her and i'm just going to bank on the fact that no one has really heard her speak that often so we'll see how that goes so yes i'm going to engage in identity death death at some point tonight so jerry what are we here to talk about tonight we are here to talk about Halloween Six: The Curse of Michael Myers mm-hmm. uh it's it's i think it's where the series kind of starts to climb and you know i've always been so vocally just against this movie but with that being said uh there's a new book that recently came out called taking Mm -hmm. shape by dustin mcneil and travis mullins it goes beat by beat through every film in the franchise about the production alternate versions deleted scenes so on and the chapter on halloween six i never thought i would say it but the chapter on halloween six was one of my favorite chapters Mm -hmm. because it added so much as far as background what dan farron's original ideas were so much that it it made me stop and think about like man the potential of this movie like it was astronomical there were so many great ideas and but the, the problem is there's so many cooks in the kitchen with Halloween 6 that it makes for a really good conversation. So I'm excited. This book is incredible, by the way. Um, I knew about it. Like, I think um, Nat had mentioned it during our when we were doing Halloween. And when I looked it up, I thought it was only about the first Halloween and I'm like, eh, how much new stuff is there going to be there? Um, and then Brian Collins, our guest in part five, mentioned like, no, it's actually goes beat by beat through all of the films. And I'm like, ooh, this is going to be a great resource to have. And Dustin McNeil is also the um, author of the Freddy versus Jason book that we used when we were detailing all of the um, – kind of would have should have been for Freddy versus Jason. So it's just like tremendously well researched. There's a ton of firsthand sources. Um even when 
the movies maybe fall short of what we want as fans. The writing there always manages to find a positive or some positives, uh, even in Halloween Resurrection, um, which is another really interesting chapter overall. And Jerry, I know you said like this is where the movies start to decline a bit for you overall. What's interesting is like to me as much as like I I think next week is going to be interesting because we're going to definitely be going after a sacred cow in uh, Halloween H2O. And I think we're going to get some people pretty riled up with some of our opinions on the movie. But the thing (laughs) about Halloween, unlike, say, Friday the 13th, where I think after part six, I definitely it was a lot of declining interest in terms of talking about the movies overall. Mm -hmm. Um Halloween as a series is never boring to talk about. Exactly. Because you have like this right here, which is like a super fucking mess of a movie in terms of like being too many cooks in the kitchen. H2O being the return of um, Jamie Lee Curtis and the kind of like where it fits, you know, Halloween basically becoming like a scream movie. Um, You get into resurrection, which is just, you know, I mean, you got to talk Buster Rhymes. Got to do it. MichaelMyers.com, uh, right? MichaelMyers.com. Um, <laughs> but all then you get the Rob Zombie movies, uh, which for all their faults, like they're not boring. Um, and then you have the 2018 uh, Blumhouse Halloween, which is a return to form. So there's like so much going on in these movies overall that make them at least fun to talk about. Like the series never gets boring or stale, which I think like, you know, I think at some point we're going to get into some of these franchises and like how much is there to say about Hellraiser 7? Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, I totally. Can't. So we're going to have to like find our way a little bit, but I think we're we're going to be going pretty strong with this one overall. Well, I also, and, mm, I don't know. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Nope, that's it. That's all I got. Now, I was going to say, you know, I love the Friday 13th series with a passion, but, you know, the biggest love of my life when it comes to films has always been the Halloween uh, series. And even from six on uh, up until David Gordon Green's movie, which I loved, uh, you know, I'm obviously outspoken with my love of that. Uh, from six up until, uh, you know, Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, I'm just not a fan of those movies. But with that being said, I am so passionately just into talking about even mm-hmm. the movies that don't work for me. And I even Resurrection, I think I will find it incredibly hard to come off in a negative way. Mm-hmm. Because I think that every film in the series has its fans, and for good reason. I could see why maybe people would like Halloween 6. For me, there's just too much going on. You could totally tell that it's so cut up from, you know, every version. You know, people always say, you know, the director's cut version, you know, is better than the producer's cut. Mm -hmm. I think both versions work in little ways, but I still think both versions kind of lack a lot. So, you know, but the potential of what could have been is the most exciting thing about uh, for me. Right. And it's one of those things where I think for years we heard about the producer's cut of the film and you could find like chopped up bits of it on YouTube or you could go to a convention and find like either a pan and scan or low resolution version of it. Um, And it was kind of like this great white whale like of a movie and come to find out now with the release of the uh, Shout Factory box set. What was that? 2010? Am I right about when that was released? Uh, right around then. Uh, actually, no, I I think it was later. Wasn't it like about 2014, 2013? Maybe. 
it's quite possible. I know that because it, it has everything in there, including uh, yeah. Rob Zombie's Halloween too. So that probably does make a little bit more sense overall. Because I know this thing was a nightmare to get all the rights to. Yes. Um, yes. But it's one of those things where now you could kind of see the movie and compare it with the director's cut. And although like it share, they share a lot of the same DNA, like the choices that are made um, completely change like the DNA of the film or, or the, the tone of the film and the intent of the film overall. Well, I um, think that that's why I'm so excited to talk about Dan or talk to Dan Farron's uh, mm-hmm. a little bit later tonight is because even the producer's cut as close as, as much of it as it, closer to what the original vision is even the producer's cut is very different from what the mm-hmm. initial script and everything else mm-hmm. was so i mean there's so much to just talk about there's so much history you know what pre-production and post-production for halloween six mm-hmm. well i think what's interesting and let's get into a little bit of the background of the movie overall i think we're going to cover a lot more of this when we talk to dan in the interview so we won't go too far into the weeds here but i think think the most interesting thing is the akads take a step back after mm-hmm. halloween 5 really tanks at the box office it it is still to date then it's always going to be at this point i can't see the blumhouse movies tanking to this fashion um it makes 11 million dollars and like a five million dollar budget and as much as we say halloween 3 is what killed the franchise or you know killed the idea of doing the anthology for the franchise um halloween 3 made almost 15 million dollars on two and a half million dollar budget so it was still really profitable it just wasn't nearly as profitable is the first two movies. Um, this one is by no means a profitable movie. So the Akkad say, look, we need to step back a little bit. Let's not rush another movie to the theater. We're going to actually take our time and develop one. In the meantime, they lose the rights to the movie, and they actually have to bid against John Carpenter and New Line Cinema in order to get the rights back. Mm-hmm. So we could have had John Carpenter in 1990 with the rights to Halloween again, along with Deborah Hill and New Line. That would have meant that in the early 90s, New Line would have had Halloween, Elm Street, the Fr- Friday the 13th series, and Leatherface all under their umbrella. And the House Party series, you know? <laughs> oh but you could have done a, a House Party versus Halloween. You could have easily done that. See- can you hear the ring to that? That sounds so great. House Party versus Halloween. You could have easily done that, man. Kid and Play versus Michael Myers, like a decade before Buster Rhymes. Comes Kid out. and Play has to slay. It's a tagline I mean, right there. But I mean, like, I, you know, people talk about what horror movies would you reboot? What would you redo? Like, what would you remake? I would love to see a remake of the Monster Squad, except instead oh, yeah. of the classic monsters. Give us like our 80s icons. Give us like Freddy, Jason, Michael Myers, Chucky, and Leatherface in a Monster Squad reboot and let like Joe Lynch direct it and print money. I would absolutely love to see that. What's funny about that is I showed one of my kids, uh, you know, like I say most of my kids, which sounds like I have like a whole like tribe, but I, uh, you know, most of my kids have seen Monster Squad and I showed one of them that hadn't. Uh, monster squad actually this last week and i I threw that idea out there i was like you know what if what if instead of that if they redid it and and i said exactly what you said and then 
my son looks at me and he goes, man, that's dumb. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, well, you know what, Jerry? Your kid's dumb. Well, he can go to well, hell. fuck him. No, just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> no, but what's funny is, I mean, you know, Akkad and Miramax get into this bidding war against New Line and John Carpenter. And when Akkad, when the Akkads and Miramax win, you know, it seems like it's a good thing. But Halloween 6, I think to this day, is the most uh, fractured yes. as far as partnership. The Akkads had a miserable time with the Weinsteins. Mm-hmm. The Weinsteins, in, in a lot of ways, almost like barred them from being involved towards the later half. Mm-hmm. You know, like it might seem like a win. It might have seemed like a win at the time. But I mean, man, I could only imagine what the Akkads thought after that whole experience. Like, man, we should have just let it go to New Line. Mm-hmm. They were not happy with the experience they got. And there were some interesting things like Merrimax offers Quentin Tarantino the chance to write the movie coming off of Pulp Fiction. And he's like, eh, no, we're not going to do that. Um, but he says, you know, but Scott Spiegel let, you know, maybe I'll be interested if Scott Spiegel who wrote evil dead two could direct it. Um, so there was a, at one point we might've had like a Quentin Tarantino scripted Halloween movie, which, you know, sounds really weird and far fetched, except, you know, now you realize he might be writing and directing a star Trek or directing a star Trek movie, at least, um, Honestly, though, like after seeing that scene in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood at mm-hmm. the Spawn Ranch, like give me a Tarantino horror movie. Absolutely. Like, and that was so intense. This is post Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction Tarantino. So this is probably him at his most coked out, too, yeah. right? Like, now, what's funny is the Scott Spiegel thing. I actually talked to Scott Spiegel once and I mentioned that. And he's like, man, I had no idea what I was doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. like he had no clue like mm-hmm. where to go with the halloween franchise like i think he listened to one of the ideas in the, in the meetings and it was just like yeah i'm good mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> it was nobody knew what they wanted to do with this movie like after part five like the writers of part five basically say okay there's a man in black who is going to bust michael myers out of prison um and the little girl is gone with an Uzi, with an Uzi, um, and yeah, great. Uh, well, who's the man in black? Oh, we have no idea. We have absolutely no idea who this guy is. Maybe it's Johnny Cash. We don't fucking know. Um, so, you imagine so they're that. like, so there's like, there's no continuity here, and basically, um. A card, Mustafa Akkad goes back into his his Rolodex. He's like, you know, I've got this like Bible that was given to us by this guy when he was twenty years old, named Daniel Farrens. He had pitched a movie back in nineteen ninety, and and we had passed. But you know what? Like, we keep going back to this thing whenever we're coming up with ideas and trying to keep our stuff straight. Why don't we call him and give him a chance to write it? I don't mean to interrupt you, but like, if you really think about like that. It's so funny to me. Dan Ferentz gave them this Halloween Bible that he wrote about all the continuity, all the characters when he was like 20 years old, mm-hmm. 1990. And they passed on that. And throughout the years, they kept the Bible to reference whenever they were in like a tight spot. Like <laughs> that shows how like little they knew about what direction mm-hmm. they wanted to go. Right. You know, 
I mean, but good for the Akkads in terms of like, okay, let's not get too off the reservation here and let's at least attempt. Let's at least try to have some sort of continuity or at least figure what, figure out what we're trying to do. So in their defense, like you have about a five or six year gap between Halloween five and Halloween six, um, which comes out in 1990, about a six-year gap overall. So at least they weren't rushing things. Um, And by this time, I mean, you could have done nothing with it. Mm -hmm. But this time, like, the Elm Street series is dead. The Friday the 13th series is dead. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre series is pretty much dead. I think you have um, Next Generation had come out, and that was, like, completely buried um, in theaters like I think people I didn't I don't even think I knew that movie existed until like 10 years after it was actually released um so you're like they're still trying to get stuff done with Michael Myers but not rush it like a straight to video type of movie um so Ferrance is tapped to kind of figure all this out and we get the cult of thorn I need you to explain the cult of thorn Jerry because I cannot do it well, I think that the Cult of Thorn angle, I mean, even though I'm not a fan of it, I, I think that it has kind of like an etymology in the original novelization for the first movie. You know, that kind of druidic mm-hmm. uh, ceremony at the beginning, you know, the the flashback to like years and years ago, where this man is watching this girl he likes that kind of shunned him with another person, so he butchers them. And then the whole tribe kills the murderer, basically tears him to shreds, and uh, does a, cor- a curse on him and his whole lineage. And, you know, that even goes into the Saw Wind stuff of Halloween 2 and, you know, Loomis in the classroom and that kind of stuff. And the, the mark of Thorn that was put on, you know, the men in black and Michael Myers in five, you know, it has roots in that. How Dan Farron's approached it, I think it was a is a good way. I mean, I don't know if you've read the original script, like one of the, any of the earlier drafts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have not. They're, they're, oh, they're great. Which I think that's why I get so frustrated with Halloween Six is because Dan Farron's wrote some really good drafts. Uh, you know, and he took that and he kind of uh, expanded it. Uh, basically, how it's supposed to be is you know that Michael Myers basically has to kill every member of his family and it kind of gets i think if i'm correct it gets reborn into someone else basically mm-hmm. he has to fulfill he has to fulfill the curse on his end but what bums me out is you get that idea and you get a lot more of that in the producer's cut but what you get in the theatrical you have no idea what the cult means mm-hmm. and they take that setup and they just kind of like shit on it at the end especially with the reshoots where it, they kind of expose all the the doctors that were in the cult members to almost like pranking right. people with the cult. You know, at it, the end, yeah. like, you know, there's like, well, I, I can't remember the line, but isn't it something? Take off like, those costume boys. Halloween is over. Yeah. And in the theatrical, they get this thing where the cult of Thorn really isn't actually a thing, but they're more into like doing medical experiments, which mm-hmm. I, I've always found like to be really weird. Uh, but, you know, <coughs> sorry, I have a sore throat. But, anyways. The thing with the Cult of Thorn and Halloween, I think it's an interesting idea for a horror film. It just doesn't fit for Halloween for me. Like I've always, I've always like thought of Halloween Six. The first time I saw it, I remember being—I think I was 15 years old—so excited because you know I saw Halloween Five in the theater as a kid. I had that cliffhanger in my head for years. You know, I wanted to know what happened. I saw it, 
And it was such a weird experience. It's almost like the same time, the same feeling I got when I watched the first episode of Bates Motel. Uh, it's like, okay, this is interesting, but why am I seeing Norman Bates being chased with an Uzi by pot farmers? Right. You know what I mean? Like in, in Halloween 6, it was like, why is Michael Myers led by a senior citizen cult? You know what I mean? Like this, it, it you know, as a 38, 39 year old male now, you know, I could totally separate sequels that are problematic from the original. You know, it doesn't ruin anything for me. But being 15 years old and seeing that, it took me a while to be able to go back and watch Carpenter's original movie because all that mystery and that fear was erased when you explained it. Like, he's basically a pawn. Like, you take pure evil and turn him into a puppet, you know? And I think that's the biggest reason the Cult of Thorn is a sore spot for so many people overall. I think you hit it exactly on the head. The the idea that in the original movie, Michael is this, just this force of nature. This He is evil on two legs, and you cannot explain him. And then when he makes off into the night, you realize that evil is always going to be among us, and you can't escape it. And over the course of Halloween 2, 4, and 5, that's chipped away at. First, you have this connection where Michael and Lori are brother and sister. So now you have a concrete reason for Michael attacking her. Then you have part four when he's resurrected and he is now like going after his niece because he's always going to be connected to the Strode family. He has to somehow, some way kill everyone in that family. Then in part five, it's a more almost like psychic link is, is applied uh, to Michael in that connection with the family. And now you have him being this kind of like, like you said, a puppet, like he's a pawn of forces that are much larger than himself. And he can be almost like programmed like you would a computer program. If we punch in these relays or in this case, magical runes, if you set the runes up just right, you, you wind him up and watch him go. And he has no control over his own actions. And it almost it adds a level of sympathy for Michael Myers, which I don't think should ever be there in that character. It, it, it's interesting because both cuts of Halloween 6, uh, <clears throat> they do the same thing as far as making Michael kind of a pawn. They go about it in different ways. Whereas the theatrical, you know, when Michael kind of turns on them at the end, it kind of shows that as much as you think you can, you can't tame evil. Mm -hmm. You know, so I mean, that's interesting. But in the producer's cut, I mean, he's about to kill the main protagonist. And Paul Rudd puts these ruins on the ground, cuts himself, says one word. And Michael Myers, pure evil that Loomis was talking about in the first film, just stands there. And it's just like, you know, I, I think both cuts have their appeal. But no matter what you look at, like, look at it, like, it's still pure evil. It, it Like, Michael Myers is not the shape anymore. He's mm. just, you know, he's just there. They drive him to where he needs to go and basically drop him off. You know, he's basically like a high school kid wanting to go to the movies at this point. You know? <laughs> and it's... It's fucking ridiculous, yeah. you know, but I, I do think that there are, are elements of the film that are mm -hmm. very interesting. I mean, you right. get like the, the Miss Blankenship character, which is basically in a lot of ways, uh, a lot of ways is kind of like Michael Myers grandmother in the novelization of the first mm -hmm. film. You know, mm -hmm. it's very close to that. And I, I think Ferens did a great job of invoking all those feelings that are in that novelization. Uh, I just think whether it's Joe LaChapelle, the director, uh or uh the one yeah, scene 
the Weinsteins or, I mean, from what I've read, the Akkads really didn't, you know, like mess up the movie that much. They wanted to make the movie as good as they can. I think it was mm-hmm. even the producers of, you know, the producers of the reshoots, you know, the Weinsteins and there's other people involved. Those are the people that thought that they had a hand in what will make this movie great. And I think it's those people that kind of ruined it, you know? And it, what I think is a travesty is that Dan Farron's especially has gotten, I think, the shit into the stick with Halloween 6 when, I mean, it, listeners, I would definitely urge you to look up any of those original drafts because they're actually really good. I mean, you have stuff like like Jamie like living through most of the movie, you know? like mm-hmm. it, like, And that I think that's a big reason why Halloween 6 doesn't work for me is you can tell that the Weinsteins and Joe Chappelle hated what came before it. And it shows by how little they care about the characters. I mean, if there's ever a Ronnie U of the Halloween series, it is the Weinsteins, you know, and Joe Chappelle. They don't they don't like Loomis. They wanted less Loomis to right. where like what six, seven minutes of Loomis in the entire movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jamie, we go through this whole adventure with this girl in four and five. We live vicariously through this character just trying to survive. And she is so just discarded in six that it makes it impossible for a fan of anything that came before it to really get it. Well, let's talk a little bit more. I think aside from the cult of Thorn, the other large controversy of this movie is the recasting of Jamie Lloyd. Um, Daniel Harris is out and JC Brandy is in. Um, Going back and like watching some of the special features in the Blu-ray, Harris has a pretty candid interview on that. And she talks about having to audition for the role of Jamie Lloyd only after reading about the movie being um, being in production and the role being recast in like some trade magazine. And she had said like, you know, she had been told at this point there's really no interest in, in the movies anymore. They probably weren't going to do one. And if they did, like, her character probably wouldn't be involved. Um, so she auditions. She lands the role, but she's only 17 years old. And she, they were told her, we're going to do a lot of nighttime scenes. So we need someone over 18 in order to um, work the longer hours. So she says, well, great, I'll emancipate myself and does it at her own expense so mm-hmm. that she's basically her own legal guardian at 17 years old at that point. Then when it comes time to pay her, they tell her, you know, well, you know, I think one of the casting agents says you're scale plus 10% because you're only in the movie for X amount of minutes. And mm-hmm. it, that's pretty insulting. I mean, she was the lead role in the previous two movies and she's this character that kind of holds this kind of loose trilogy together and she's basically being paid like a, a day player at that point well, and she basically says go pound sand i'm not going to do this well that and what sucks about that is that's another way that it's completely obvious that it wasn't the akkads doing that mustafa akkad loved daniel harris i mean mm-hmm. you know in other interviews you know he paid for her to have her own little premiere and of mm-hmm. halloween five you know like she hung out with with, you know, th- his, his daughter, daughter. Mm-hmm. you know, like it, it was very much a family thing. And can you imagine how it felt for the Akkads to have to basically do that to Daniel Harris because of the Weinsteins? Like that sucks. Yeah. That was terrible. So she's done. She's done super dirty by it. And the role goes to J.C. Brandy, who's fine. I mean, she's just nothing wrong with her. Um, lovely woman. Um, but there's nothing for her to do. 
you know, I mean, it's not like she goes and reinvents this character. Um, and you just get this, like, depending on the, I can't, what, which end for the character of Jamie do you think is worse and more insulting for the character? Is it being thrown upon farm equipment and basically gutted basically two scenes after you appear or getting a bullet to the head while you're asleep um, while reliving the nightmare of your serial killer uncle raping you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's worse? Well, you know, this is the I, worst I, game I, of would you rather ever, basically. I think that the theatrical death for her, while it's brutal to watch, I think is interesting because it kind of goes back to that scene on Halloween 5, you know? It goes in that Halloween 5 scene where she kind of tries to, like, appeal to Michael's humanity, which shouldn't exist, but it does in those movies, you know, in, the, in 5 and 6. She tries to do that. She reaches out to him. And what does he do? What does he do? He basically pushes her back and guts her. That sucks. But oh. I mean, I, 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 I get it. She's in, she's asleep. She's injured in the producer's cut and they put a silencer to her head and shoot her. I think that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And I think the most ridiculous thing is this. In what, I'm trying not to get vicious with this. In what fucking universe that we have lived through for the first five movies makes anybody think that we want Jamie Lloyd to get raped by Michael Myers. Like that. I think that is to this day more insulting to me than Laurie Strode being killed, you know, in the beginning of resurrection. Mm -hmm. Like you get a girl, a character that you've seen four and five, this little girl abducted at the end of five. And then, Michael Myers impregnates her, you know, and, and one of the things in that taking shape book that like made like me almost spit out my drink. There's a quote that, that George Wilbur said in the issue of Fangoria where he's like, well, this time I'm a papa, but don't worry. I keep my mask on during the love scene. Like what the hell? Yeah. You know, like I don't, I don't care who wrote it. Michael Myers raping Jamie as a, mm-hmm. as a subplot. Like that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really bad, and that it, it's no, in the theatrical cut. It's not; it's implied, but not made specific who the father of the baby is. Um, mm-hmm. It's clear as day who the dad is in the producer's cut, and it's just like it's really gross. It's really gross and really uncomfortable. Um, and I don't get it as a plot point. And the other thing, too, is I don't get as a plot point you have, you know, one of the major elements of the movie is this character of Danny, who is uh, L- Lara Strode's son. And he is kind of hearing the voices that, you know, Michael Myers heard, like Mrs. Blankenship says, oh, you know, little Mikey heard the voices, too, when he was about your age. That's one of the major plot points. And he is quote unquote kind of being groomed for this role of taking over for Michael. What is the point of the baby? Is the baby a sacrifice? Is the baby a potential killer? I am not a million percent clear what each of their roles are supposed to be. Are they going to compete against one another at one point to see who's going to take over the role of the killer? Um, I, it's very well, weird. I've always to me. thought, I've always thought uh, in the theatrical, I've always thought that they're trying to like, get Danny 
to basically become the new Michael Myers and start with killing the baby. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, that's just my interpretation. Uh, you know, in the producer's cut, it's weird because, and they reference this in Taking Shape as well, and it's always been a thought in my head uh, too. Uh, it seems like there's this weird operation that's supposed to happen between both boys at the end of the producer's cut. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't get it. You know, that's, I'm really interested in uh, hearing what Farron's has to say because mm-hmm. it's such a weird, weird uh, kind of thing, a setup at the end. I, yeah, it's hard to make sense of it overall. Now, one area that you and I disagree on is the handling of Dr. Loomis in this movie. Um, I like Dr. L- the way Dr. Loomis is, is handled here. I like the fact that he is retired. He seems to be at peace with his past. He's writing his memoirs. He's listening to a radio program on Haddonfield without getting all worked up in a lather about it. Um, he's kind of come to peace with the fact that he's failed. And I think that's kind of, and I think he's earned that overall. He's really not the unhinged lunatic that you have in the previous movies. Now, part of that just might've been um, Donald Pleasance is failing health. He passed away during the making of this movie. Um, It's very obvious watching the performance. It's almost sad in a way how ill that he is overall. So, I don't know if he could have dialed it back up to that 11 that he's at by the end of part four and all of part five. Um, I I think from a technical standpoint, I agree with you 100 percent. You know, uh, Pleasance didn't have the best health. So I understand that direction. But I think just as far as looking at the character, like for me, it's hard to separate what part of Loomis from one, two, four or five would have just been okay just sitting mm -hmm. there being chill about writing a book, knowing that Michael's out there and has Jamie. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, that's just the part that it's it feels weird. Because, I mean, maybe, you know, who knows? Maybe Loomis was just like, you know what? That heart attack at the end of five was awful. Fuck this. Mm-hmm. I'm over. I'm out. Right. You know, I'm done. But it just feels like, you know, when when Loomis hears the the radio show, he kind of bounces back into that, you know? And, like... You know, he immediately goes and tries to do everything that he did in the previous movies. I think what sucks is they kind of just treat Loomis almost like a Reverend Sayer character. Like, Mm -hmm. he's so just, like, thrown aside for most of the movie. Mm -hmm. You know, and I I think that's such... I understand that, but at the same time, like, as far as an exit for one of the best characters of all time, I think it's just kind of disrespectful in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's not a lot for him to do here. It's almost like he's in the movie because you have to have him in the movie more than anything else. I, in some ways, appreciate that reduced role because it lets some other characters maybe step to the forefront as thin as some of these characters are. But I like this idea of Loomis kind of being at peace with the yeah. his failure overall because, let's face it, sometimes we do fail. Sometimes we, you know, we... Just no matter how hard our efforts are in life, you don't succeed. And you need to be able to kind of put things behind you and kind of be at peace. Now, granted, when I fail, it doesn't lead to the death of like 40 people. Uh, <laughs> so, you know. I would have so, quit for the first movie. I mean, looking up over that balcony, I would have been like, you know, screw this. I'm well, done. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right back to wherever I'm from. Yeah. So no, like, dude, like. I just I just find it hard to get on board with the idea that Loomis 
would mm-hmm. run towards this shit for so many movies, mm-hmm. and then at at some point, mm-hmm. it's 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 Lewis discovering that Michael Myers had been escaped from jail with an Uzi mm-hmm. and abducted Jamie. That it was just like I'm done. And then you had the season, end of I'm good. yeah, yeah. He's like, uh, I don't like I, this. I don't like automatic weapons. I'm out. And he's taken a long time to write this book too. By the way, like six years is a long time to write your memoirs overall. Um, Such a hurry to get it out, kind of like Rob Zombie's Loomis was. Mm -hmm. You know, like I think it's interesting that both of them are authors, but one of them is just like taking his time where the other like can't seem to stop writing. He was churning books out about Michael Myers. Was not going to let that cash cow go, man. Yeah, yeah, he was all for it. but yeah, it's it's a it's a weird end. And he, in the theatrical, he has two. There's two endings for Loomis's character. He in, in both the theatrical and the producer's cut, he tells Tommy and Lara that he has unfinished business. And then the movie changes dramatically from there. Where in one, you just hear a script. The they had reshoots at the end um, for the producer's cut. Um, you just hear a scream. And that's it. Fade to black at that point. The that's implication the, being that he was murdered by Michael in the end. Yeah, no, the theatrical cut did that. Uh, the the producer's cut is interesting because uh, basically it's insinuated that Loomis is now the caretaker of Michael Myers. And while that's ridiculous to me, I, I also find that kind of enthralling to think mm-hmm. about. This guy has spent yes, his yeah. life battling pure evil now has to protect it in some ways Mm -hmm. that's interesting to me you know though i'm not on board with it it's interesting whereas the theatrical and this goes back to the reshoots even it was supposed to end with tommy fighting michael in that kind of lab and you see the chains there and he's supposed to hang michael that was yes Mm -hmm. original intention the original script everything they got so lazy that they were behind and they were like well what are we gonna do we don't have time to shoot that We'll just throw, throw a mask, mask on, on the ground. We'll throw a mask on the floor. I have no idea what's coming out of the eye sockets of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you hear Loomis scream. It's like, okay, so yeah. Loomis just got killed. Like, you not only say goodbye to one of the best characters by murdering him off in the theatrical, but you don't even see anything. Like, it's right. it's just a clusterfuck. Well, I think by that point he was dead, too. So it was really, you weren't going to dig up Donald Pleasant's corpse and then have, like, Michael Myers ragged all the yeah. corpse around. So <laughs> that's true. You know, uh, that that would have been in, <laughs> even even for the Weinstein's. That would have been in poor taste. Even then, that would have been burning. Right, but you know, I'm not, you're right. I I mistook the directors and producers for a moment. The producers cut almost as a happy ending for Michael. Yeah, he's he's just kind of like, you know, he Loomis is the new caretaker. Uh, mm-hmm. Michael, I don't know if Michael punches out the uh, Doctor Win or what. Mm-hmm. Why Doctor Win's passed out? But Michael Myers like knocked him out. Maybe he like Mike mm-hmm. Tyson's punched shit, stole his outfit, and Michael Myers is walking around in the Men in Black. Like it's interesting. But there's this idea too that he's no longer <laughs> under the thrall of the Cult of Thorn. So if you take it at face value that this character has been under the thrall of this cult for the whole for the whole running of the series overall now Myers is no longer under that thrall is he still a killer is he going to be live as you know is he going to go live some quiet life of solitude um you don't know at that point I mean it just has him wandering off is he released from that because I mean Loomis gets that kind of 
tattoo, which, God, dude, as somebody that is covered with tattoos, mm-hmm. I wish I could get one that would just show up because that mm-hmm. shit hurts. Yeah. You know? It's just it's this magical tattoo up here, and he's in charge of Michael. I mean, so does that mean that Michael was free, or I, I don't I, get it? I took it as free because, you know, it, it, when you when he's under the when he's under the spell of the, the cult overall and the power of the runes, like he can't move, he can't do anything. And he's, they're able to direct him wherever they want to go. Um, which is a, a really big change from the theatrical, which we'll get into in a minute with the scene that was added in there. Now, like he was able to overpower when he was able to change outfits with him. And I think it's, no small thing that he's no longer under that white mask that, you know, for the first time he's like, doesn't need that. He just wanders off into the night. Um, and I think that's a, in some ways, like, and I, I enjoy this movie more than you do. I find it like a real fascinating movie to watch. It's not perfect. It has a lot of flaws, but it's definitely not boring. Um, see, in some ways now it's a really happy ending for the character. See, that's cool. That's interesting. And the movie itself isn't that boring. I think my biggest issue is that I find the majority of the characters extremely boring. Mm-hmm. I mean, Kara Strode is supposed to be this protagonist. Mm-hmm. And I forget that she exists in every scene mm-hmm. that she's not in. You know, and uh, as, as far as I'm concerned, she's almost almost the least interesting character in the yeah. movie. I mean, the, the character that drives me nuts the most in Halloween 6 is Tim Strode. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, we've all went to school with these white guys that thought that they were really into hip hop and listened to Snoop Dogg, mm-hmm. you know. And that is Tim Strode to a T, you know, with the stomach pounder, you know. Like I, I just oh, the God, I the dude. drug rug outfit, like the tie dye drug rug um, <sighs> that he's wearing. Like it's a really even more, I think, more than any other of the Halloween movies. It's really dated overall. Uh, I mean, even like, the soundtrack. I mean, you get like you get kind of like the Creed sounding guitar at mm-hmm. doing the theme. You know what I mean? Like it feels so weird. Yeah. Like the keyboards and piano are nowhere to be found in this movie. Mm-hmm. You have like, the it, shock jock going for like the the Howard Stern angle, so you have like the really abrasive, um, you know, sexual harasser shock shock jock in the movie. Just some weird early '90s shit overall. It feels like the Halloween theme in Halloween 6 feels like every time you go to Guitar Center, there's always one goth kid that wants to show everyone that he knows how to play Halloween, but there's not a piano nearby, so he plays it on guitar. Mm-hmm. That's what Halloween 6 is to me. Kind of. It's not. It kind of is like that <laughs> overall. But what's what's interesting about Kara Strode, this is a period of time where your three of your big four franchises their final girls are no longer high school students. All of them are mothers. Um, You have the Nightmare on Elm Street series. You have Heather Langenkamp playing herself, um, raising her child and with married until he's killed off in the movie. You have uh, Friday the 13th, Jason Goes to Hell. You have a single mother. Now you have Kara Strode, also a single mother, living in the Myers home, with the worst dad in any horror movie ever. Dude, uh, John Strode. God, I want to strangle that motherfucker. (laughs) I should not be that pissed at like a fictional character, but that guy is, he's, he is the worst. Like, you know what? And this is a bold statement and please people do not crucify me for this. John Strode drives me crazy 
like even crazier than William Forsythe and Rob Zombie's Halloween. Mm-hmm. Because at least that character, William Forsythe's character in Rob Zombie's Halloween, is that piece of shit that we've all had as a stepdad at one point of our lives. There's no pretense of, there. Yeah, he's he's just a shit. John mm-hmm. Strode is just a bastard. Like he's yeah. not all talk. That's the difference. Ronnie from Hollow from Rob Zombie's Halloween is all talk. John Strode, he slaps. You know, he hits yeah. his daughter. You know, this this is a guy that like who knows how far he took abuse. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. and I think Halloween Six is also a part of the series where it gets to those characters that you're really running out of characters to get on board with at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, like I think. I think the only character that I really try to feel for in this movie is Tommy Doyle. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, I love Paul Rudd. I, he's such a great actor. You know, I've been a huge fan of his since Clueless, uh, you know, and I think he's a great actor now. But I will I beg anybody to argue the point that they have ever seen Paul Rudd actually try to act as much as he does in Halloween 6. Oh, yeah, he's really good. Oh, my. He is so what? good in that movie. What is the accent he's trying to pull off in this movie? I don't know. Like it, it, it sounds almost like New England. Like it, it almost sounds like an SNL impression of like mm-hmm. a Boston accent at times. He's like Young Judd, and <laughs> he's like a Young Judd in a Pet Cemetery prequel. Oh God, right? So it is. Uh, it's interesting. The original idea, like Ferrance's original script, Tommy Doyle was back, but so was Lindsay Wallace, and they were going to mm-hmm. be. And I think the idea, like their Lindsay, is taken out of the script, and you get the characters of uh, Beth, and then the brother character overall, Tim. Mm-hmm. Um, but originally, it was going to be Tommy and Lindsay, and they were going to be a couple. But uh, you know, again, what's interesting this at this period, you have Friday the Thirteenth. Sorry, you have Halloween. Six, Paul Rudd is soon going to go on to stardom after Clueless. And right around the same time, you have Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation, with um, Matthew McConaughey and Mm – why can I not think of her name? Uh, Renee Zellweger, right? Yes. So, you know, they have, they go, they going on to like a mega stardom soon afterwards as well. So it's just really interesting to see these like soon to be a list our uh, characters, like appearing in these super well, low budget, I, you know, I think, I think another great thing about uh, Paul Rudd in Halloween six is that he is the antithesis of every other person that went on to like stardom after doing one of these movies, mm-hmm. you know, you ask Renee Zellweger, McConaughey, or tons of other people about these the movies that they were in, and they almost like scoff at them, you know. Mm-hmm. Whereas Paul Rudd has nothing but good things to say about yeah. of Halloween Six. I mean, at one point, I remember somebody asked him, uh, you know, uh, why he like why he's opposed to like you know doing like a Halloween convention or something like that, and he's and I if I remember correctly, he said something along the lines of like, well, nobody's asked me, you know, <laughs> 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 you know, like. That's cool. Yeah. It would be, I mean, like, I'm sure he could pick up a phone and do one, you know, right. but, you know, oh God, it, would, it sucks that he's not coming back for Halloween kills. Um, I think there's See, like some that, sort of schedule. Okay. He's got to make that, that Marvel money. I think that would be cool. But at the same time with the, with Halloween kills, not following the continuity of, you know, four five and six, kind of like David Gordon Green's did it. It would feel kind of weird to me. You know, but then you also have people throwing a huge fit because Brian Andrews isn't playing Tommy Doyle in the new one. Mm-hmm. You know, but Blumhouse asked him, 
you know, Brian Andrews was playing hard to get, and he lost the role to, you know, Anthony Michael Hall. Like, oops, you know, Let's, you had your chance, buddy. Yeah. Held out. He's like Daniel Harris held out for that paycheck, uh, and it just didn't work out. Um, but, yeah, I, it's, you know, the, I, I like this idea that you're bringing Tommy Doyle back in this movie. And there are a lot of really good little nods to the original Halloween movie in here. Mm-hmm. Um there's the scene where Danny first runs into Tommy and it mirrors the scene of Tommy bumping into Michael Myers in the first movie. Yeah. Uh, it almost feels a lot of times it almost feels like they maybe were set trying to set up the idea of if Tommy is kind of that unhinged, would he end up cracking too? Mm-hmm. You know, that's not a bad idea. Yep. Yeah, because so he has the Unabomber bedroom with all those pictures up. It's interesting, oh, dude. If you go into Tommy Doyle's bedroom in Halloween Six, there's there's a shooting gonna happen. Somewhere. Oh yeah, it's a murder. And like, who did he make that Michael Myers mask? Uh, you know, screensaver background, or mm-hmm. did someone else make that? You know, mm-hmm. did it come on a CD-ROM in Circuit City? Like, where's this coming from? Oh man, yeah, it's again those giant CRT monitors, your pre-internet. Um, oh God, he goes, it's, it's, he goes to being like terrified in the first movie to like almost being having like this kind of like yeah about in the sixth one. He's like, you know, I was this years old when I first saw him. And he's so creepy. Like, dude, I'm not the biggest fan of Halloween Six, but I could watch Paul Rudd as that character like 24 seven. Absolutely. I wish, I wish there was a not producer's cut, but I wish there was like a Jerry's cut where all it is is Paul Rudd. Like if I'm ever if I'm in, ever in another like hardcore band. I'm naming it Paul Rudd and his magical runes. <laughs> oh, the power of the runes stopped Michael Myers. It's beautiful. Yeah. Um, what other things are there in here? Oh, Kara running from Myers at one point and like banging on the front door to get in and Tommy having to let her in. Like all these yeah. little nods, I think, to the first movie. We were kind of talking about this on Twitter. Like we were messaging about it. I kind of feel like this is the first movie since the first one um, where a lot of the stalking scenes and a lot of the suspense occurs during the daytime. And I know that, you know, Halloween four, you have the garage scene. You pointed out daytime scenes in Halloween five that I swear to God, I forget existed. Like I'm oh, like that each part of the movie. Yeah. Including yeah. Rachel getting killed is done in the daytime, but just there's something about, especially in the producer's cut, there's something about the movie. And I think what it is for me is like Michael stalking Kara on her college campus. Yeah to me feels a lot like Jamie, uh, like uh, Jamie Lee Curtis getting stalked in the first Halloween movie that oh, totally. nothing's really happening overall. And I think maybe that, and also your, um, the scenes where the mother is killed, you know, taking place in um, amongst a bunch of like clothes, amongst a bunch of like uh, bed sheets that are flapping around uh, on clotheslines overall. To oh, me, that yeah. mirrors the first movie. I, I love those parts of it. And mm-hmm. uh, I think that's why I loved Halloween 5 so much, is that you mm-hmm. got a return to that stalking. And yeah, there's huge extended sequences in Halloween 5 where Michael is kind of in that park behind those trees, like staring at Tina and Sam, you know, and it's creepy. And it's, it's some. Of, I think that's a big reason why I love Halloween 5 so much, is we get that kind of return to daytime stalking. And uh, those those elements in Halloween Six and the producers cut, I think, works works for it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I so I don't know. Like to me, like to, to me, when watching this movie, the shape feels like the shape again more so mm-hmm. than he did in part four and part five overall. Like it just feels like the and what's funny is like it's the same. It's like George Wilbur who played the shape in part four, correct? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, he seems a little bulkier, mm-hmm. and I know that that was a big problem with the reshoots. Which, you know, I've always said that if you're going to do reshoots, at least cast the same people because that's one of my biggest problems with the theatrical cut of Halloween Six is ninety percent of it you have George Wilbur who has a very specific shape in the movie, mm-hmm. <laughs> unintended. And you get that whole reshoot at the end, and the dude's taller, he's thinner. You know, thinner. Like, it just it doesn't match. It's like watching mm-hmm. the third Crow movie, right. where the guy that played the Crow, one scene he'll have short hair, and the next scene he has, like, hair down to his shoulders. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, people notice that shit. This is definitely dad bod Michael Myers in part six. Like, yeah. he has a little bit of a paunch. You know, it's been like 15, 16 years. He's approaching 40 years old at this point. Shit's not working like it used to. Um, (laughs) You know, it's someone who has let himself go downhill physically. I can appreciate, you know, Michael Myers' dad bod in part six. Like, to me, that's... Yeah, yeah. That and, like, you know, every other exploit of Michael Myers in the past, he was very active. You know, in six, he's basically just in that kind of like like mm-hmm. Smith's Grove, just chilling while everyone else is doing the handiwork. Mm-hmm. You know, so who's to say he didn't like spend an extended amount of time in the you know Smith's Grove cafeteria with those, that Jello? You know, again, that second sloppy he's Joe. Yeah. You know, so it's definitely you know, so I I really like that. But he's to me, there are like moments like the first time Michael emerges from the dark to oh, kill the nurse is really good and it's just like that, echoes oh my god that shot where he comes out of that that uh, that area and the fogs in the background mm-hmm. and kind of silhouette oh it's mm-hmm. such a shot there are there's a lot of beautiful shots in this movie yeah. and you know joe Chappelle has gone on like he's one of the executive producers of um the wire so he's been a guy that's gone on to like a really good career as an executive producer in television overall like this is not a um you know it's not a hack um producer in csi miami producer on fringe um so he's had a long career in television but the big thing for him would have been um being one of the eps for uh the wire one of the most critically acclaimed shows oh, of and rightfully so it's great right. I, I think that what drives me nuts and it drives me nuts with halloween six and halloween resurrection as well is anytime these movies don't work very specific people get blamed mm-hmm. daniel farren's with halloween six or joe Chappelle with halloween six you know what i mean like to be honest I don't think either of those guys are responsible for what happened with Halloween 6. I think it's 100% the Weinsteins trying to do what they did so legendary-like with Miramax. They Mm -hmm. screwed with so many people's movies and turned a lot of them into shit. And I think that there are shades of really interesting things in Halloween 6, but I Mm -hmm. do feel like the Weinsteins kind of second-guessing everything in Farron's script, I, I think it just made the whole thing suffer. Yeah, and the wine scenes basically said this movie isn't scary enough, it's not bloody enough, it's not gory enough. So you end up having some really bizarre out-of-left-field choices. Like, the cult scene in the third act is basically replaced with a massacre um, 
on the part of Michael Myers, where he goes into the operating room and he butchers all the doctors in that room who are all allegedly part of the cult overall. And it's really weird because it undercuts the it completely undercuts this theory about the cult where like this idea that evil can be controlled. Um, well, no, it can't. Like he just totally went up against that at that point, and he went rogue like way earlier at that point, just to get a really bloody scene in there. Beth's scene is way bloodier in the um, theatrical version. It, it's like super gory, and the audio for it is really gross. Uh, Jamie goes from getting shot in the head to getting gutted on farm equipment, and in the most bizarre scene of the movie. John Strode's head explodes when he's electrocuted like a ripe pumpkin. Yeah. Yeah, it's see, my thing is with this, there are parts of the theatrical that I think have very interesting ideas. And I think there's some parts of the producer's cut that have some very interesting ideas. And I think maybe if there's a way to combine both of their ideas into like one cohesive story, it mm-hmm. would have worked better. You know, with if you're gonna do the cult leading michael myers i'm not on board with that but with that being said if you're going to then i do like the idea of him turning on them showing that mm-hmm. you can't harness evil you know that's interesting but then at the same time you know if you're going to do the cult thing go the original intention i mean i know one of Farron's original intentions was to have the like it revealed that the whole town of haddonfield was in on the cult mm-hmm. like that that you know what i mean go big with it if right. you're going to get if you're going to take a series way out there take it way the fuck out there you know right. like make it as make it as bold as possible mm-hmm. because you get these really interesting ideas that Farron's had and they go nowhere in what we got because of all the tampering well i think too you, you just get this completely frustrating experience for the filmmakers to work on to the point where you're no longer excited about making a movie. It now becomes a chore. It becomes a gr- something that you're just trying to survive at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the the Weinsteins, I mean, A, Harvey Weinstein is a monster that will hopefully spend the rest of his life in prison. Um, and I think what's interesting, too, it's the writer of Halloween Resurrection is interviewed in this book, Taking Shape. And he That's tries. Bad. What's that? Larry Brand, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. And and Mr. Brand tries to kind of play it coy at first, where he's like, you know, I really don't want to say bad about any anyone. He's like, yeah, fuck it. Like, Bob Weinstein is a <laughs> shithead. He's like, he has no brains, no talent. Um, he just goes all in on Bob Weinstein uh, in particular in terms of, like, what a, you know, like, what an idiot he is overall who has no idea what makes these movies work uh, and just thinks, like, throwing a bunch of more gore and blood up on the screen is going to, like, kind of fix it. The ending of part six, the director's, the um, theatrical version, you know, we talked about how lazy it was and how they kind of ran out of money and just, like, threw a mask on the ground. But it ends with, like, Tommy Doyle beating Michael Myers with a lead pipe and Michael Myers like oozing green sludge from his mask. I I don't think that anyone that had a hand in those reshoots had actually seen mm-hmm. a Halloween film. Mm-hmm. Cause it, it, you know what I mean? Like why is green sludge coming out of Michael Myers fucking eyes? Right. Like what? This isn't a leprechaun movie. Right. You know, I think to kind of wrap it up is like 
the reason why, and I think what you're seeing is a little bit of like this in Halloween two, Rob Zombie's Halloween two, both of them seem to be getting a little bit more of a reevaluation these past few years. Uh, Zombies Halloween two in particular this year, it seemed like a lot of people were really more, remembering more fondly or seeing more positive things about it than they had before. And I think that what's interesting to me about this movie is it is a failure of a movie. Like it just doesn't completely work. Uh, it's a Halloween movie. Like to your point about like Halloween four is a good slasher movie, but it's not a good Halloween movie. Like this is a really good kind of supernatural cult movie, but it's definitely not a good Michael Myers movie. Oh, I, I agree a hundred percent. I I think the producer's cut, if you took Michael Myers out of it, it would be kind of an interesting weird ass movie, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's definitely not a Halloween movie to me. No. And, um, but I, you know, it's something that I, I will probably watch more often. Like I would watch this before I would watch Halloween five. Um, I would watch this before I'd watch like a resurrection, before I would watch Rob Zombie's Halloween one, I'm going to be honest. I would watch this before I would watch H2O again. Oh, I, um, I have zero intention of watching H2O anytime yeah. soon. Well, I guess I mean, I have to. Yeah. We have one more go at it at this point. And, um, it, it's one of those things where like, cause that does not, you know, as lit as, this still feels like it still exists in the same universe as the other Halloween movies. Like it still has that overall tone to it <coughs> where, H2O just, just feels like a completely different beast um, altogether. And it does no longer feels like the movies I grew up watching at that point. And I remember liking H2O the first time I started in movie theaters. But I don't know, like to me, time hasn't been kind to it. And I remember it seemed like last year there was a little bit of a backlash on the Blumhouse Halloween when it started to get really successful. And there was like a small but very vocal group of people saying, um, well, H2O is better than the 2018 movie. And I'm like, you people are out of your fucking minds if you uh, think that. Yeah. Like, that's a bad opinion. Um, oh, this movie to me is is interesting. Um, and just little things I really appreciate. I love that after three bloodbaths on Halloween night, um, between part one and two, and then parts four and five, Haddonfield finally says, fuck it, we're canceling Halloween. No more Halloween in this town. Well, that like, kind of goes in the, the kind of like abandoned Dennis Etchison take on Halloween four that they didn't go with, which is mm-hmm. another really great script where they kind mm-hmm. of do the same. So, I mean, yeah, you know, Halloween six is interesting. I'll give it that. And I understand why there's fans. Uh, you know, it, I, th- I think it's a fun thing to talk about. Yeah. Uh, so, hey, I just got a message from Dan Farrens. He's good mm-hmm. to go. If, if okay. whenever we are. So let's wrap up part one of this talk overall. And I'm going to hang up in a moment here. And we are going to have part two of this talk. It's all going to be released as one episode where we're going to be interviewing the writer of Halloween 6, Daniel Farrens. Um, so stay tuned after this little break, which we'll insert here. Um, so we are back for part two of our deep dive into Halloween 6. And Jerry right, and I right now are uh, fortunate enough to be joined by the writer of part six, Mr. Daniel Ferens. Daniel, how are you doing tonight? Hi, I'm doing great. How are you guys? We're doing really good. 
we're doing, you know, like it's late here over in Boston, but yeah, <laughs> we're gonna plug away. So, well, I'm in LA and it feels late because it's getting dark so early these days. Oh, so, uh, it makes it worse. So, I think the question I had first, and I know Jerry's got a lot of questions, so I want to get this one in first. Like, what was fascinating to me, like, kind of like reading about the history of this movie, is you kind of became known as the Halloween Bible person um that prior to writing the movie you had actually presented almost like a canonical history of all of the movies uh and tie-ins and whatnot that the akkads kept referencing back to when they were trying to make this movie but before they'd officially hired you what were some of the things that went into this this bible Hmm. Um, you guys are taxing my memory here, but I, I know yeah, I was going to say it's been about it. 30 years, but well, not quite that page, long, but well, on page close. seven. Yeah, yeah, pretty close. Um, when I went in and with that, that first meeting, I, I met Mustafa Akkad, uh, in, I think it was early 1990. And I was brought in by Ramsey Thomas, who had produced the fifth movie. And they were very quickly looking for writers for the sixth film. They were going to make it. The plan was at the time they were going to make it right away and it was going to come out the following year. And we all know how that worked out. Um, but, yeah, I went in. I was you know, so young at the time. And I, you know, just I felt, you know, like being summoned to the principal's office in a weird way. So so I really wanted to stand out and, and show these people that I, you know, was the guy. And that I knew this, I thought, at the time, better than anyone. Um, and that I had a real plan for it, um, for how it could kind of live on and go on to more interesting, you know, iterations. But, um, yeah, so I, I, I did go in there with a, you know, I think it's now kind of calling it a Bible, but it was, it was like a notebook and it had, you know, had a fancy cover on it and, um, with that logo. And I created that logo with the Halloween six with the, the A that I turned into the, the thorn symbol. Mm -hmm. I think people have seen that a lot now, but I created that. And, um, I I really like I think you guys have already sort of expressed what it is. It's you know I I wrote out in you know different um, almost like essays in a sense, and then you know timelines and you know kind of where the story has been, who the main characters are, where they could kind of come back, um, and sort of like a timeline and a, and a family tree. I remember you know, like who who were the Strodes, who were the Myers, and really kind of like diving deep into the mythology of the whole thing. I mean, it was really inspired in a way by the, I think many people know of the, the Curtis Richards um, novelization of the original movie, mm -hmm. which really kind of took us back into the, you know, the, 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 the origins of the pagan festival of Samhain or Samhain. And um, that was really kind of like a jumping off point. So yeah, it had all of that in there. And it, I mean, it wasn't like some, you know, illustrated companion, but I definitely did my homework, and I remember I went to um, a bookstore here in Los Angeles, not around anymore, uh, called the Bodhi Tree, and it was this kind of a like very famous New Age bookstore down on Melrose Avenue, and um, I spent, I just remember a long day there just looking up, trying to figure out what that symbol was uh, that we saw in the mysterious stranger's uh, inner wrist um, in the, in Halloween 5, and, and uh, it was at the Bodhi tree that I found a book called rune magic, um, by Donald Tyson. I remember it. Uh, I think I still have it, uh, where I was able to identify what, what that mark was and what it meant and kind of it's, it's connection to the lore of the holiday. So all of that stuff I included and, um, you know, 
I was surprised to see that, you know, whatever, four and a half years later that I was brought in to really meet about this project, um, that Mr. Akkad still had it on his desk and it was looking kind of dusty. Um, but that he had said to me, you know, this is, you know, this was remarkable. And we, you know, we, we turned to this because you've kind of created this timeline that we didn't even know existed. He's like, you know, I think it's, he used to often kind of jest that, you know, I knew this better than they did. And he would try to hit me up with trivia questions about the franchise. And they were just super easy questions for me and probably guys like you. So, <laughs> so when it, he when was it amused, comes, he was amused by my in, in, intense knowledge of these things. Mm-hmm. So when anyway. it comes to the actual development of the film, you know, as a writer, I know you had plenty of interesting ideas, you know, initially, uh, you know. Uh, different than what ended up being, uh, you know, what you wrote. Uh, you mm-hmm. wanted I mean, some of the earlier drafts. I mean, Jamie lived a lot longer than she did in the film. And wasn't there even talks at some point of maybe Lori coming back? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the very first treatment that I turned in, it was, you know, it was such a thing that, you know, they kind of gave me a, you know, they kind of did the bait and stick trick with him a little listen i was the young unproven writer i had one small film made at the time and you know and i think they understood that they could kind of work me a little bit and that you know makes perfect sense um so you know i wanted so badly to not only get this job but to impress them with my you know acumen of the whole thing that i i wrote this treatment that initially that was so big that you know it was probably like a 20 million dollar movie but i turned it in and most of her read it and loved it. He's like, listen, I think this is all fantastic. And all of these, these are great ideas. Um, and I love this direction, but it's too much. So let's, let's, let's make it, let's do half of this for six. And then the other half of what you came up with will be Halloween seven. And we're kind of like ready to go. I think there was even some talk at the time about just trying to do, I think that's what they're doing now. Like these back-to-back movies. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, we didn't we didn't end up doing that, obviously. But um, there was I remember there was some you know early talk about maybe there's a way to to just do these, you know, one after the other. But um, but in terms of your question, yeah, I mean, there was there were definitely different versions, incarnations, um, approaches to the material. It all sort of centered around this idea of the of the holiday being, you know, that night of the year when the living and the dead, you know, kind of coalesce and that 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 veil if you will between the two worlds is 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 most active and is sort of transparent and we can you know and the boogeyman comes to life on that night um so all of those things were always part of it but in terms of this kind of like secret society or coven um that was always sort of the pitch and i remember the first thing that i said to them was what if we match halloween with rosemary's baby you know, how, mm-hmm. how do we bring those two ideas together? And I remember there was like a light bulb in Mustafa's eyes when I said that. He loved that. So that was kind of my my marching orders was to create something that felt, you know, darker, maybe in that realm of black magic, that realm of like, you know, the the mystery of the, and lore of the holiday as more than just another continuation of, you know, Halloween four and five or even one and two at the time. So, um, but as a super fan, I really wanted to bring all those story threads from the first two movies, which I felt like in a weird way had been really discarded in four and five. I mean, other than connecting the Jamie Lloyd character to, 
Laurie Strode, I just felt like so many things about the first movie and the second one were just kind of like dusted under the carpet and I wanted to bring them out. How close did it actually come to having not only Tommy Doyle in the movie, but also a returning Lindsay Wallace? Yeah, well, I think they're doing that now. So, oh, mm-hmm. so much for my all, all my all, all my old good ideas are being apparently dusted off again. Um, but yeah, no, the, I think the original treatment, and and you know, again, just you're taking me back a long ways. But I do remember there was a version of it where Tommy and Lindsay were this kind of young, you know, twenty something couple, and and he was, you know, always sort of this obsessed guy. She was sort of more the grounded one. Um, but I think that he was originally I pitched him, but he was this sort of college radio, you know, middle of the night, you know, DJ, uh, sort of the voice, the crazed voice of, of Tommy Doyle out there in the town of Haddonfield. And it was, it was almost like a pirate radio station. I was sort of probably influenced by um, pump up uh, the volume. Yes. Pump up the volume. So I think I think that kind of seeped into my my pitch at one point um, that it never really went anywhere. I, and I don't remember at what point it was decided that, Hey, let's not make him that let's just make him more of like this reclusive guy that hides. And, you know, I kind of, I, I jokingly referred to him as peeping Tommy, um, you know, kind of, you know, like in this weirdly voyeuristic way. And I think in, even in the movie, we sort of set that up early on and he's this kind of weird guy, like staring out windows and looking at girls undressing, uh, so, you know, th- that became, that evolved into what, you know, what the movie was a little bit more, but yeah, originally there was, there was a, a return of not only Tommy, but Lindsay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jerry, you uh, had a question. I don't want to, I don't want to, I, I, I did, uh, you know, when it comes to the, uh, you know, producer's cut of the film, it's a lot closer to what those earlier drafts that you wrote, uh, you know, mm-hmm. what they were, uh, right. when it comes to the theatrical cut, you know, a lot of that changed, and I know that really wasn't your doing whatsoever. And I'm curious, as a young, not only as a young writer, but as a huge fan of the series, was there ever a point where you're like, guys, this is really strained from what it should be? Well, I said it every day. I mean, I said it so much that it got me, you know, nearly kicked off the set a couple times. You know, people mm-hmm. didn't, the powers that be uh, didn't want to hear that. They wanted to hear that we were making the greatest movie of all time. So, and I was kind of a lone voice, me and a couple other people, you know, who were passionate about making it as good as we could, were kind of like raising our hands. You know, we were kind of like the young rookies who just, you know, had, I think, a better sense of the franchise and also what an audience of that time would have wanted to see um yet there were as you guys sort of astutely said you know there were a lot of cooks in that kitchen and you know for with a lot of different motivations going on to just get it done as quickly and painlessly as they could so you know there wasn't a lot of um care or consideration given to what the fans would want to see you know it's interesting now all these years later and seeing the new movie and i think what they're doing with the next couple of them from everything i know that that seems to be their primary concern is that initial that that original fan base and paying a lot of fan service and i think i think in a way that's good but i almost feel like wow wasn't why wasn't somebody thinking this when we did ours <laughs> you know mm-hmm. <laughs> so 
Uh, where was that attitude then? Uh, maybe we needed, you know, at the time, like a, like a Jason Blum producer to really, you know, to emphasize that. But the producers that we had at the time, unfortunately, just weren't of that mindset at all. Not at all. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said at the beginning, uh, you know, there always seems to be one person that gets blamed for like, mm-hmm. you know, too many cooks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the 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 choices that that are made in the theatrical version, you know, just having Michael's mask there or like this green uh-huh. ooze coming out of out of his eyes while getting pounded. I could only imagine how as the writer of of the movie, you know, it must have been yeah. like. That was not me at all, you know? No, and it was, you know, I mean, at the time it came out, I was, you know, it was devastating because, you know, there's my name up on the screen and then there's this whole ridiculousness that plays out that has nothing to do with what, you know, I was hired to write and that we all agreed was going to be the movie. Um, You know, I think after that first cut of what's now called the producer's cut, I don't even know how I got that name, but that's what it's called. Um, I know that, you know, there was a very strong consensus among all of us. And I think I was relieved to know that they were going to go back and fix some of it and add some things to it to spice it up and to bring some of the logic back to it that I felt really got lost even in that version. Um, Mm -hmm. I just didn't feel like it had scares and it didn't have suspense. And I thought, well, great, let's go back and add that. Um, Only to find out, you know, obviously you, everybody, all these years later, everybody knows what they ended up making. Um, yeah, it was it was it was disheartening and it was frustrating. But, you know, at the same time now, again, hindsight um, and just looking at it through different eyes, I'm just super grateful that, you know, I had that experience and that, you know, I had the opportunity to, you know, put my own fingerprint on, you know, certainly my favorite horror film series of all time. And, you know, so now I just I have nothing but, you know, love in my heart. And every time the movie plays on AMC and you know, and stars and whatever it's on around the holiday, you know, the Halloween holiday season. It's just, it, it's, I just smile and it's mm-hmm. just, it brings back so many memories of that period yep. of time. Not all of them great, but you know, it's, it was just a part of my growing up and I just think of the friendships and I think of the camaraderie that we did have and being, you know, the young ones on set. It was like me and Paul Rudd and Marianne Hagen and Malik Akkad, certainly. Um, we were, you know, maybe a little bit, subversive (laughs) what we were doing (laughs) and i think there was something you know when you're that young and you know probably a little foolish we just had we just were having a great time kind of like you know making fun of the the old timers (laughs) i think i even wrote some lines in the script that kind of kick sand in some of their faces Mm -hmm. um so (laughs) we were we were a bit you know kind of like bad kids (laughs) we were not doing what they wanted us to do and i think that was to their you know chagrin but for our you know greater good we just you know what little things ended up in the movie that i think are cool i i look at it as like wow that was that was something we we did you know as a group that you know the the powers that be didn't want us to do i mean i think of specifically like the scene in the in the fair where it's kind of like a bunch of cuts and there's the Mrs. Blankenship is telling the story of the origins of the holiday and it's mm-hmm. all intercut with those slow motion shots of Paul Rudd and as Tommy like walking through this kind of creepy festival and there's all these bonfires and fires in the park where they shot it and uh, they didn't want to pay for the fires they didn't want to there was a permit that you needed to light the fires and the producers the production side of things and production coordinators, they didn't want to pay that permit. So I think it was my memory serves me. I think it was Malik that went around just one that night and 
when they all had their backs turned, you know, he just was like lighting them up. <laughs> so, so, yeah. Like I look at things like that. I'm like, yeah, we did it. You know? <laughs> well, it's always easier so, to ask permission, uh, ask for forgiveness after, and permission. Uh, right? I would say ap- apologize for it later. Exactly. Yeah. There's there's such a there's been a renaissance in the last few years of original takes on on things getting like, you know, different treatments, whether it's audiobook or comic book. I mean, you know, we, we've had this really great series on Alien 3, you know, a comic yep. book series. I, I'm curious, has there ever been any interest uh, either from you or from anyone else at maybe taking your original script for Halloween 6 and making it into something like that? Because, I mean, I mean having, read, having read it, it's really good. Oh, thanks. Um, thank you for that, first of all. But, you know, no, I don't think anybody's ever approached me about, you know, well, certainly people talk about making a novelization out of it. I've never heard of a comic book, although we did do um, my friend and sometimes collaborator, uh, the late Phil Nutman, uh who came to me, he had been approached about doing some of the early Halloween comics. Uh, I think it was for Chaos was the name of the company. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you guys probably have seen these, but he he wanted permission to sort of take my part of my treatment for one of them. I can't remember if it was supposed to be the seventh one, or I know they had approached me about doing something for eight at one point. Um, and just sort of wanted to take some of what I had already and kind of you know, use that as the basis for one of the comics or maybe a short series of comics. I think that's what he ended up doing. I know he sent them to me at one point. I will confess I never read them. Uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, I, it's just sweet that he would want to even mm-hmm. take that as sort of a starting point for it. And uh, um, I, you know, I'm always, I'm always touched when a fan or a group of fans and that, you know, I get an email from a young fan somewhere in the world and it, and it happens a lot that they will tell me that you know six was the first one they saw as a kid or even when they first saw in the theater and you know that it really inspired them somehow to either want to make films or you know because that was really my story with the first movie it really really was i you know was 12 when i saw the first halloween and it literally knocked my socks off terrified me but then made me go wait a minute how'd they do that and that began my, you know, years long love, fascination, obsession, whatever you want to call it with with these movies um, in high school, junior high, high school. I was making, you know, my own Halloween movies, <laughs> you know, <laughs> recruiting my friends. I was making fan films before they called them that. Um, is, so, yeah. Is someone who hasn't seen uh, hasn't read the scripts that were kind of altered uh, even from the producer's cut. Mm-hmm. What would you say are the biggest things that are missing, like the in terms of ideas or mm. things that never made it to film? Like, I know we're going into the way back, but what would yeah. you say is like missing even from the producer's cut that kind of alters the vision yeah. that you had overall? I think I think the overall thing I can tell you and people listening to this is that what, what that version of the movie is missing, although I prefer it in many ways, it's just like the suspense of it all, you know, mm-hmm. the building tension of, oh, where is it going to be? And, you know, and misdirecting the audience. And I, mm-hmm. I think that's the essence of Michael Myers is where is he going to be? He's like that jack in the box. Where is he going to pop up next? Mm-hmm. And I just I know I wrote a bunch of scenes where that was the intention. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the fact that all that stuff got kind of scrapped 
because they weren't either giving the director enough time to get the shots or that there were just meetings that I wasn't privy to, that they were just putting, you know, X's through scenes that, that just didn't have time to schedule or, or, mm -hmm. or weather permitting. I remember we were in Salt Lake City when it was snowing instead of, you know, fall. <laughs> so, um, you know, there were just a bunch of factors. So, yeah, so that for me, it would be that number one. And number two, I mean, specifically, I can remember that, um, you know, there was just more it was just more stalking. It was more tension um i remember the scene mm -hmm. with the the, the the sort of you know blowhard of a of a father you know john strode comes home and he's drunk and he's making a bunch of noises and i just remember there was a whole like cat and mouse sequence in the script of him walking in one door and michael myers kind of peering out from you know moving past some doorway and he sees him out of the corner of his eye and the guy's got the television on and i remember he turns it on and it's halloween three is playing on television and he says what is this shit and he turns it turns it off see I, goes, I love that go, because now you have in and then oh, he goes, I, love that. I remember he gets his microwave dinner out of the thing and mm -hmm. then he goes back and somebody's turned the halloween three back on so it's all that kind of like childlike stuff that michael myers does you know he likes to mess with them a little before he kills them and i just felt that was the thing that i was most disappointed in in the producer's I, pet version is that they didn't I love they never shot any of it i love that in your world halloween 3 exists in, in oh. halloween 6 <laughs> yes, which is a world right. where halloween exists as a movie <laughs> that's in right. halloween 3 i think that it's would like, have blown you know, to the it's head a little payback. it's a little payback for making the first movie just mm -hmm. a movie in the third one um it's, it's I, interesting I do remember too. the akkads not liking i mean i i don't often point the finger at the akkads because i have to tell you they were like incredibly supportive of me but i think the one of the things i do remember was, was a comment either from malik or his dad saying yeah you know although it's good to make fun i know you're what you're doing here and i know you're making fun of the movie but it's still part of the series and we don't really mm -hmm. want to like make it look bad and you know mm -hmm. like, yeah but guys that's like fans are gonna like this mm -hmm. this is gonna be cool you know and now in the new one they have like kids running around in halloween three masks in the right. of town. so like again all of the things that i felt like at the time i was fighting for it just took you know 25 years on for them to get with it <laughs> so that it, um, it seems anyway. it seems that the spirit of reevaluation is really strong these days in a mm -hmm. in a positive way. I mean, right. in, it, within you know, I spent my entire childhood defending Halloween three, and it seems like in the past few years, suddenly yeah. you know everybody loves that. It's, and I've, I've noticed, that, I, and I, I even mm -hmm. get that now in six. Like you know, this movie was reviled critically and even by fans when it came out, and now it's got its own little you know cult fan base. No pun intended, mm -hmm. but there's certainly a lot of fans um, that have kind of come up. I mean, there's still people that say it's the worst one and all of that. That's fine. Does it, um, does it but, kind of feel almost uh, like rectifying to see like, you know, Fright Rags coming out with like Curse of Thorns socks <laughs> and all these things for well, a movie that you, that you wrote? <laughs> that I never expected in a million years that I would have a pair of Thorn socks. But I do own a pair because my friend Luke uh, purchased them for me for my birthday a couple years ago. So I'm like, yep, I, I do own a pair of Thorn socks. <laughs> No, I never saw that coming. I don't know if it's gratifying or just like, wow, <laughs> I'm really. Where old. were you guys when it was in the theater? <laughs> right, right. Well, just there was never any, you know, I think we had a soundtrack and that was it. Um, and it wasn't even a complete one because they did kind of such a hack job on poor Alan Howarth's music mm -hmm. in that movie. Um, 
but you know, again, I just, I, I just don't want this to come off like here I am, like all these years later, complaining about it. I'm really not, you know. And even at the time, as sort of dismayed as I was over the changes that were made, you know, without much, I felt logic. Um, I mean, Jesus, I was just so glad to be there. Right. Mm. We were talking earlier about the two different endings for the movie um, and how we both prefer the producer's cut ending. Mm -hmm. I was kind of making the point that it's almost a happy ending for the character of Michael Myers. Mm -hmm. Um, He (laughs) breaks free from the power of the runes, uh, (laughs) but he's able to, but he's able to kind of go off on under his own power. And Mm -hmm. I, you know, I was wondering like, in your eyes at that point, is he free to be his own man at that point? Or is he still this serial killer that we've known for six movies now? Well, I mean, the runes weren't even your idea, right? What? Say one more time. What was the last question? The, like, stopping Michael with the runes. That, was, that oh, wasn't you either, no, was it? No, it wasn't. I honestly don't remember where that came from. I, I, mm-hmm. I remember being in a room of people... <laughs> with this suggestion sort of being put in a, in a box, you know, (laughs) like how about a special, like, and I remember at the time there was talk about doing like a big special effect, like, like a light or something that was going to come out of these rocks. (laughs) I'm like, that's Halloween three. Like, it's like, but without television sets, it's just the same thing. No, you know, and I just, I think it was just this weird thing where they just didn't, either like how I ended it or didn't want. I remember the ending that I originally wrote took place in the bathroom or in the, in the, in the, in the, in the public restroom of that bus terminal. Same one that you saw at the beginning of the film when, you know, Jamie Lloyd runs in there and hides and the baby and all of that. Uh, she makes the phone call in this empty bus terminal. And that's where everybody was supposed to end up at the end of the movie, except they end up there and, Kara Strode ends up with her throat slit and the kids are kidnapped and Tommy Doyle's left like, oh my God, he's going to be blamed for all of this. And that was the end of the movie I wrote. It wasn't any of that sort of weird, you know, I don't know, supernatural magic acorns. I don't know. I don't know. I don't remember who came up with it, but and especially that goofy line, you know, like the power of the rune stopped him. It just makes me laugh every time I hear that. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, gee, they drugged us, Tommy. Where did they all go? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> just <laughs> that was it's it's like from the minute Kara jumps out the window, which I don't know why she jumps out the window uh, the way she does. But um, all everything that comes after that is almost, you know, it's like little bits and pieces of what I had. But mm-hmm. it's almost like they're really low budget truncated let's not put as much let's not put too much effort into this version um let's just you know we got six hours let's get this done you know it was that's how it felt and it never really felt like it was gonna take it to that really dark place of this what this coven was and and what the intentions of these people were and how michael was you know something that they worshipped it wasn't like they controlled him i never really mm-hmm. understood that notion of michael myers this sort of you know child who sat in a sanitarium for 15 years and and then escaped i just never understood how he would be under some sort of weird mind control i thought it was he was so powerful in that hospital and actually a lot of that stuff came from the novel you know that mm-hmm. they all feared him you know and did his bidding 
And that's how I sort of took it. And it almost like they became that town in the short, short story, the famous short story by Shirley Jackson called The Lottery, where this tradition has become so part of who they are as a town that they don't question anymore why they do it. Um, they just offer sacrifices. So they looked at him as being so powerful that they needed to let him do what he needed to do, which was escape and kill people. <laughs> so um, that's so how I saw it. You know, I never saw it as some sort of weird, like, I don't know, like those goofy robes and the big collars. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it was all kind of like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And I, I, I just kind of got, I just remember scratching my head going, well, it's <laughs> not quite what I had in mind. Um, you know, so, and I, and I think that's, we, I, I just saw it as much more of a gothic, dark, you know, uh, uh, horror thriller as opposed to this kind of goofiness that ended up on mm -hmm. screen. So it sounds like your idea of the shape is much more in line with John Carpenter's version, like just evil incarnate or evil on two legs well, that well, can't be explained well, or can't be controlled. John Carpenter said evil on two legs. That was probably mm -hmm. the funniest line of the entire series to me. Um, mm -hmm. I, whoever said that was a good line, okay. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> John Carpenter did not write that. That right. was Halloween 4. Um, right. And that was terrible. So, but no, no, no. I mean, yes. I mean, there's what, what's to argue? He's mm -hmm. already been established as a character. Mm -hmm. You don't need to change that. You don't need to reinvent it. You just need to kind of add new dimensions to it, new new story threads to keep mm -hmm. that going and to keep him the center of the of the action. I think that's the whole point of this series. Um, but, you know, I certainly didn't intend for it to kind of go into this weird, you know, first of all, this like underground cavern and he's having sex with his niece and <laughs> all that stuff was just... Um fucking bizarre so you can definitively say that the michael being his okay so we can definitively say right here that the idea of like michael raping his niece was not your idea it was you, definitely not my idea. okay excellent good we can continue then great uh because well, we're still scratching our heads over yeah over i think that, that was one of the producers just trying to you know i I thought the whole thing should just have been very nebulous and, you know, it's like Rosemary's baby. If you, if you've seen that movie or you should go back and watch it, if you haven't, mm -hmm. you know, she's, she's raped by something. We just never know what it is. She's mm -hmm. drugged and she's, she's saying, this is, Oh my God, this is really happening. You know? And to me, that's what that scene should have been. It should have been like, almost like a, like a sixties kind of psychedelic strange, you know, drug-induced you know kind of miasma of color and sound and and creepiness just mm -hmm. like a horror scene a real horror scene not this kind of again you know weird like temple of doom thing i think there were some interesting shots they did in the black and white film and all that I kind of like that mm -hmm. but but um but then when they start definitively answering these questions like he's the baby's yours and i, I just like what? <laughs> I, I, I just didn't understand the need for that. So right. um, I just thought it was more interesting and creepy and gothic to just not know. Like, what was oh, the definitely. purpose of this? Why do we, why do we, why are they trying to kill this girl and her infant child? It's just so twisted. And, you know, again, it's, it's what, it was what I was hired to do was to sort of take a, a Rosemary's Baby kind of story and and see how we can merge that with the Halloween universe. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I thought I had accomplished that, but I just felt like, again, in, in the translation, things got lost. And I certainly don't blame, you know, I think a lot of people give a lot of shit to the director, Joe Chappelle, who honestly was a, a cool guy. And, and we got along great on the, on, on the set. I just felt like he was under the influence, <laughs> talk about being influenced, of just a lot of people who were promising mm -hmm. him a lot of things for future projects and, you know, and, and I think as a young director, of course, that's enticing. Mm -hmm. And he had a young family to support. And I, and I saw him kind of get starry eyed as things went further into the process and, and drawn in by that lure of, you know, hey, kid, we can make you big time if you mm -hmm. do what we say. And I think that was kind of the beginning of like the setup of the camps you know but i just remember on location in salt lake city he was nothing but like spirited and and great and mm -hmm. really had i thought like a nice eye for it and we all were just like all on on his team we wanted to you know help him make it the best that it could be and mm -hmm. i just i just think as it went on it 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 became something else and yeah so. Oh, we, we were talking, Jerry and I were talking earlier, just when dissecting the movie, that it seems like at some point it became something to just get through at this mm -hmm. point with all the reshoots and everything right. going on. Well, that's um, exactly what it was. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there was, I think, four days of reshoots, something like that. Don't quote me, but I think it was like four days. And and it was in July of the same, like two months before the movie was going to be released. Mm -hmm. And you know, Donald sadly had passed away, you know, mm -hmm. now what do we do with that? And, and, you know, we can't go back to the original sets. So what do we do with that? And it was just a big mess. And then, I, and then there was, you know, the Akkads walked away from it and, and the, then the, and then dimension and their team of, you know, people came in and, and decided to run that show. And it really, <laughs> that all of that was very much studio driven, that whole, set of you know those changes mm -hmm. this might not be something you can answer but when was the decision made to replace donald pleasant's opening narrative voiceover with paul rudd instead because mm -hmm. having loomis give that narrative at the beginning i think adds a whole different yeah. layer of gravitas to the movie yeah. Yeah. that then goes missing i so agree with you guys um so agree um I do remember it was during those four days of reshoots that Paul Rudd was pulled aside to go like record that bit. I wrote it because I was told I needed to write it because the reason that I was given for that was they felt that what Donald said, although it wasn't a thing where they didn't like the performance, it was a thing where, hey, we didn't get some information across to the audience mm -hmm. that we need to get across which is like, you know, his nine-year-old niece, Jamie, you know, something like that. It was something specific to connecting story dots that they felt like because he didn't say it that way, we need somebody to do it. The only person to do it that makes sense is Paul. Go write that. And so I wrote what I what's in the movie. Mm -hmm. I wasn't happy. I know Paul wasn't happy about doing it. You know, um, although it was, you know, more lines for him. He just he had so much respect for Donald. We all did, you know, I mean, even Joe, I, we, all, we all, you know, bowed to Donald Pleasance. I mean, it was mm -hmm. amazing. And, you know, I honestly, I just I don't think the films are the same without him in them. I don't think any of them have been as good without him. 
Um, so that that being said, um, yeah. So that that was that was the reason for it. It wasn't it wasn't one of those like kind of like ridiculous decisions that was being made to you know. The only thing that I do remember kind of kicking back on was you know, and, and you've seen in the producers cut they have those kind of flashbacks to the to Halloween Five, and you see the mm-hmm. stranger with the gun, and then you see. Jamie and then we shot a pickup of her coming out in the back and being, you know, so so we could connect the dots visually, which I think is always better than having somebody say it. Right. Um, but then I don't and honestly, I don't know who made the decision to remove that flashback. And I think it might have been Joe Chappelle. I don't know for sure, but I think it was him. I remember at some point him saying, like, hey, this movie needs to stand on its own as opposed to being a sequel to the fifth fourth and fifth movie and i'm like yeah mm-hmm. but it is a sequel to that <laughs> like why are you trying to make it something it's not like that's what this is you, you know, know so speaking... you know yeah so that was that was one of my sources of frustration i remember with that that they removed that that flashback which actually that was kind of cool yeah yeah it's great you know and then speaking on that really quickly uh you know it feels like that uh, there's there were some people involved that kind of not scoffed at the films before it, but maybe didn't give it the respect that it should have been. I mean, you know, like like I said, having read some of the drafts and, you know, it, it seems like when the theatrical cut came out, it seemed like Loomis and Jamie were kind of almost afterthoughts to the yeah. movie. You well, know, and, certainly theatrical, and I and I don't. I wish I could tell you guys. I know that there's been some stories like, oh, Joe Chappelle hated Donald Pleasance. I don't remember that being what that was at all i I, if anything that just to me sounds like the studio going less old man more hot young guy you know know what i mean like they Mm -hmm. they look at it from how do we market this movie to a younger audience like what do they want to see and it just to me it spoke to like marketing people in some think tank going oh that paul red guy is in this new clueless movie and he's going to be a big star let's emphasize him and not not like oh you know i know somebody that's like some something that's been around the internet for a while like oh donald pleasance was boring i don't think joe thought that i think i think that's more of a, a that sounds to me very much like a dimension films mandate you know that's studio brass saying get rid of the old guy mm-hmm. and as horrible as that sounds that would be the way that those people would talk right. Well, I think too, like now this, your movie kind of still predates the internet and Mm -hmm. it certainly predates social media and being able to get like, being able to like really get like (laughs) mass hive opinion. Thank God it did. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I think like you wouldn't have, like, I think now we go back, like part of the reason why 2018's Halloween works Mm -hmm. so well is that you have Jamie Lee Curtis returning in it and you have that Mm -hmm. connective tissue, you know, where if, if that were around back then, you might've seen like, no, we want more Donald Pleasance. We want this. We don't want this standalone story. We want a continuation of what's Mm -hmm. come overall. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I remember even Mustafa was, was always even as early into the world of social media as we were, you know, I think there was mm -hmm. basically like, CompuServe and Prodigy <laughs> or something like that. I'm really going back a, bit, a ways um, in those days, probably longer than you guys were alive. But anyway, so I, I do remember him being this one voice among many 
saying, let's get a focus group together, like very informal, like they can come to my office. Let's show them this, 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 and this and see what mm -hmm. they think. Let's get a good cross section of people that, you know, would see this movie and get their opinion. And nobody ever did it. I, but I do remember him putting that out there as sort of let's get feedback before we commit to something that might mm -hmm. be a mistake. He was always on the train of Danielle and my ideas. And, you know, he never he was never that guy. He was never the one to sort of push the button and, and say, yo, veto mm -hmm. that that just was never he he you know, he's a filmmaker himself. So I think his ideas were always support the vision of the filmmakers, you know, the storytellers. And I guess if I have one regret, it's that I didn't really push myself as the director of the film. Because <laughs> I think it would have been really different. <laughs> so, How, but I could have uh, added a whole more layer of headaches. At that oh, it point. would have. And my life, I probably would have jumped off the Hollywood sign when it was over. But, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, at least then I could blame myself for all of it. You know, at the end of it, it would be like, okay, I fucked this, this, and this, and this up. But you know, at least it would have been all been on mm -hmm. me. Well, not all of it, but there would be a more of it on me than than I think that I feel like I ended up getting. Um, I don't know. I just it, it's always like I feel like we're, every time I talk about this movie, it's always about the negatives. And I think there are a lot of positives about this movie that mm -hmm. I like better than the new one. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. um, I just do. I, I think some of these newer ones are not that great and i don't get it but okay well we were just talking we we were wrapping up our discussion so you can go back and, and listen to that ahead of this interview when it posts in a day or two like this to me is the last of the original halloween series mm. until the 2018 movie that feels like a halloween movie that it's still even though like the character of michael is his motivations are vastly different it still feels like it lives in that universe of the original Haddonfield, which to me, like the the movie that comes after it, I think I think that's going to be a pretty fun show to do because neither of us really love that movie. It doesn't feel like it feels so far removed from the original series in terms of the tone of the movie overall. Which, which one are we talking about? H2O to me, which I know a oh, lot yeah. of people still list that as like their second favorite movie. And I think right. that people are out of their minds. Like it doesn't well, feel like a Halloween movie to me. Um, I mean, you know, this, there you know, are, that was again, you know, that was made mm -hmm. at a time when they were coming off this like incredible success of mm -hmm. scream. And I think that the studio wanted that. That's what they wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. like. That's why they That's hired they Kevin Williamson to write, you know, he really wrote, you know, I, I, I know what was in the original script and mm -hmm. I know what was in the movie. Most of that writing was Kevin Williamson. Yeah. In that movie. Mm -hmm. um so you know that's why the dialogue's kind of like overly smart and snappy and the kids mm -hmm. talk like you know i don't know any kids that ever talk like that um <laughs> but that was the tone of the time that was right. the smarter than they should be mm -hmm. smart alecky kids i, I even, even in that one i remember thinking like laurie strode doesn't say fuck every two seconds she right, like, yep. i don't I, I don't I just wouldn't have written that character right. that way. I'm not frank. I wouldn't have written the way they have her in the Nate, the new one either. I just it's too much. It's too much. Mm -hmm. It's too far. But to me, yeah. there are a lot of little touches like the scene of uh, Danny running into Tommy Doyle and they right. first meet mirrors what happened to Tommy in the first movie. Yeah, it's, you had mentioned you had a lot more stalking scenes in it. And I think mm -hmm. this is the first like what I really appreciate about this movie is a lot of the stalking takes place in the daytime. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Well, there was even more, you know, right. all of that stuff. It was just so truncated, you know. I, I think there was, in, in fact, I think even in the in the final theatrical cut, they they cut all of the stalking around the little college campus. I, that was like completely removed. But I remember, like, you know, there's like a little bit of it in the in the producer's cut, but there was a lot more. You know, I remember there was a scene she was in the library after school, and or you know, and it was like people were going home and they were trying to set up for the fair, and the sun was, and she was like in this mm-hmm. dark library and. And he was there and and just moments like that that I felt like really made it more atmospheric and more suspenseful and creepy um, and also sort of justified. Like, well, why is he going to the college? (laughs) You know, his his attraction was like Laurie Strode. It was to Kara. He wanted to follow her. He wanted Mm -hmm. to make her his victim. And I think that all got lost, you know, especially in that, you know, that silly stuff with the fair and the, the DJ and he ends up in a tree. Mm-hmm. Um, but just nothing, nothing makes sense. You know, why is he there? I know in the original draft, it was like, they went to the fair. They, they didn't stay home with the, you know, with the babysitter. They, they, they went to the, to the fair. Right. And it was like little Danny got lost and it was like a hall of mirrors and there was this whole thing. Um, you know, and they just didn't, I think they didn't want to spring for the big carnival. <laughs> so I think that was the real reason, you know, they didn't want to, you know, and you know, again, I, I produced as well. And I know budgets are a real thing and they're a real thing because you have so much time and so much money to work with. So, you know, you end up making changes that, you know, maybe don't help the project because you're dealing with a finite amount of money. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, this movie for what it was, was budgeted small it was like i think we are i I, don't quote me exactly but i think it was somewhere around under four million dollars um so and i think we had another i think there was some money that had been diverted from our i'd heard this i don't know if it's true that had been diverted from our movie to to hellraiser because that was in all kinds of trouble at the time and um so you know things got even tighter um so I think I think some of it was budgetary, but I know there was, you know, there was hmm. I just wrote, I wrote an ambitious script for a sixth movie, you know, budgeted at four million dollars. You know, there was a helicopter mm-hmm. and there was flyovers of the town and um, there was a whole character that got scrapped early on for the, the mayor. Um, to me, he looked like Colonel Sanders. Uh, <laughs> um you know, I wanted him to be kind of, you know, I wanted I wanted there to be a little bit of a um, a mystery angle to it because I wanted there to be, oh, maybe he's the man in black. And my way of sort of pointing a finger at this mayor was he was wearing all white. He wore that suit mm-hmm. with the hat, and the, you know, but he was dressed in white. And he was this kind of like larger than life, you know, very conservative figure who, you know, wanted to, you know, ban Halloween for life in this town. And he got outvoted and. You know, it was a little bit like the Marin Jaws. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, Dan, uh, we won't take up any more of your time. Uh, I just wanted to leave it with this. You know, like I said earlier, a lot of these movies do get reevaluated, and it seems that Halloween 6 is definitely going through that right now. A lot of people are mm-hmm. kind of getting on board with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in closing, what is it like? How does it make you feel to kind of see that those people come around with something that not you not only wrote, but as a fan? I mean, it must have been like a dream to work on. Well, it was. I mean, and that's that's exactly right. I mean, it was a dream to work on. It's gratifying every time I see Paul Rudd in a big budget movie. It's like I, you know, he owes it all to me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but literally, we we were just young and 
excited and thrilled to be a part of something like that there was this and so meaningful to me you know on such a personal level i mean to 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 grow up with this kind of bizarre obsession with this film and then to go on and get hired to write one of them is it's almost unheard of and you know and also i didn't have an agent i didn't have hollywood friends you know i didn't have any of that so you know, I, I think for me, it was it showed me that I had that spirit and determination and, you know, a little bit of talent, but also an ability to tell a story and be able to present that story to a group of people that can, in a way, change your life. And that's exactly what happened. You know, I've been working in this business for over 20 years and I'm going on 25 and and it that wouldn't I don't think it would have happened and if it did happen it would have happened in a very different way had that movie not come into my life so I'm forever grateful